There's something really curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. Nominal, nominal, Hello everybody and welcome to this special edition of TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. So why is this episode so special? Well, not only is it the first episode of our season six, it's also our annual World Space Week podcast, which has been registered as an official World Space Week virtual event. So if you're joining us from the World Space Week website, welcome on board and I hope you enjoy your time with us. Now, it wouldn't be the same without a certain person from the good old US of A. So let's uh, just uh, twang a piece of string that's connected to a couple of cans across the Atlantic Ocean and see if my regular co-host John Berger is about. John, are you there? Twang a piece. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that I, I don't think I've ever had an introduction quite like that. <laughs> <laughs> I heard twang, twang and I went to Texas. It's like, wait a minute, what's he going to say in cowboy? <laughs> <sighs> Hello. <laughs> no way am I saying that um, using Skype is the same as having a piece of string and two cans. Nah, sometimes a piece of string is better. <laughs> if you weren't going to say it, I was, so I might as well just say it. So season six, right? What, this isn't our Eurovision episode? No, I'm kidding. Six years. What the heck? Hard to believe you've been putting up with me for six years. <laughs> Notice how he didn't deny it, folks. It's a ride, though, isn't it? <laughs> it's fun. There's so much goes on with the show, and it's ever-evolving as well. So, John, what have you been up to since the last time we spoke? I am still roughly six feet two inches, so I've been up to that for a long time. <laughs> and that is, like, the total dad joke, but... <laughs> <laughs> what can you, since when am I serious? Never. It's a, it's a bit like doing the captain thing of a plane saying, uh, my present height and location is five foot six and sitting down, you know. Um. <laughs> Never heard that one, but I like it. <laughs> well, you've had your touch with celebrity. I had the chance to meet Chase Masterson who played Lita on Deep Space Nine, the, that uh, uh, very easy-on-the-eyes Dabo girl. Uh-huh. Now, granted, I live in the middle of Pennsylvania. I am 90 minutes from Baltimore, two hours from Philly, four hours from Pittsburgh. There ain't much that goes on here, but apparently there is a comics and pop culture show co convention that goes on nearby. Not fantastic, but, you know, for what it is, it was pretty cool. And I found out she was going to be there. Didn't recognize any of the other names for people who were going to be there because it's mostly comics and so forth. Uh, there was someone who's who's uh, with the Power Rangers, but I don't watch that, so I had no idea who she was. But when I saw Chase Masterson, I was like, oh, hell yeah. And uh, I went over there, and there was no line at all. I kind of felt bad for her in that regard, but we also were able to chat for like 15 minutes. So we were talking about a whole bunch of different things, especially, you know, Deep Space Nine, and I was telling her how much I loved it. Because I will say this, you can come at me all you want, Internet. Deep Space Nine is my favorite of the Star Trek series. I will watch Deep Space Nine more than I'll watch any of the others. It's been that way ever since it first came on the air. Especially nowadays, with the way that people binge watch. 
it's cool to see that it's finally seeming to get what the love that it deserved. Because it was the first, well, when I think about it, the only of the Star Trek series that was one big, long arc, you know, in a serial format. Whereas all of the others, even Voyager to a degree, was kind of, okay, here's our 60-minute segment on this story. And then next week's was different story next week's was a different story next week was a different story not many of which related to the others where you didn't have that in deep space nine so things that happened in season four could come back in season six you know so i guess in that regard it is well a very close comparison is obviously babylon 5 which was pretty much the same kind of thing but you know, we had a chance to talk about all of that, and I mentioned how I appreciated how characters actually developed and all of that. We talked for 15 minutes, and it was great. And because we live in the middle of nowhere, no one came up behind me afterward. So I had her all to myself, and it was wonderful. Got lots of photos, and uh, she was asking me about some other things because I was wearing a NASA shirt. So she was asking me things about that. You know, it's still space-related. You know, she was asking me if I had seen the Star Trek series on CBS All Access, which, no, I won't. Sorry, not going to go for a paywall. Got a couple of autographs. I also got the, uh, have you seen yet the Deep Space Nine 25-year anniversary DVD Blu-ray? I haven't uh, done as yet. Has that been made available over there yet? I'm not 100% sure, to be honest. Oh, for those of you who have never heard of it, it's called What We Left Behind, and it just came out this year, and it was a 25-year retrospective by Ira Stephen Bear, who was the showrunner for it, and he brought the cast back, he talked with a lot of them about what they've been doing and how much the show affected them, uh, some behind-the-scenes things, and a very cool segment where he got some of the writers from the show back together, and they came out with a new episode as though the show was about to enter a new season 25 years later. So they showed the whole process of how they do it and how they brainstorm, and they came up with this story for a new episode, for season, what, what, would it, what would that be by now? Well, it would be season 8 if it was sequentially, but if it was actually in terms of years, it would be something like season 33, something along those lines. And it was really cool. I brought that with me because I was part of the Kickstarter backer for it. So that, her eyes lit up with that. She's like, you supported the documentary. He's like, yep. So I got an autograph with that. Got an autograph in a regular 8x10. To be able to meet her was fantastic. And because you know we were talking so much and she appreciated how much i appreciated the show at the end she's like okay come on give me a big hug and so i i got to give lita a big hug i am not going to argue that's really cool when you can approach people like that and um i think that's the beauty of the smaller comic cons well from what i understand this particular comic con was recently bought out by a bigger management firm so they could command people like her oh i also met up with the uh, people who do the local uh, 501st, re- what is it, Legion, Le- Regiment? My, my, oh, the my uh, the garrison, yeah. So I uh, was talking with a lot of members of the 501st and uh, talking about how you know, I've done weapons and 3D printing and so forth. So I yeah, got all that kind of information. They were talking about how they, they do the charity events and, and, you know, go to hospitals and so forth. You never know. You, you might be seeing me in one of those outfits soon. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't argue. I'd have no problem with that. Go to charity shows and stuff like that. I'll do it. And it might be worth getting in touch with the organizers of the event and see if it's possible to get involved in future years. It was mostly comics. I mean, for some reason, there were a bunch of sellers there with those little uh, Funko Pop dolls. Oh, they're everywhere. 
Oh my god, there were so many of those being sold. Lots of comics, lots of toy props, things like that. And the signatures, the autographs were way in the back of the room. Mm -hmm. So yeah, got to meet Chase Masters and that was definitely the highlight of uh, last weekend. Yeah, it sounded like it was good fun. It was. It was. It, it's like you said. She's very approachable, and the fact that I loved the show so much, she appreciated it. That I, I love the things that make the show good, not just that. Oh, hey, cool! It's a uh, someone from Star Trek. I'm going to go visit her. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I because I knew about the show, and I was we were actually able to talk about it and how much I loved it and why I loved it. And she really appreciated that. You know, and. It, it was it was a very cool time. So, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is our World Space Week show, and I think it's best that before we launched the show into the podosphere, we told people a little bit about what World Space Week is. So, World Space Week is a global celebration of science and technology and how they have contributed in making our lives better. The United Nations General Assembly declared in 1999 that World Space Week will be held each year from October 4th through October 10th. So why were these dates chosen? On October 4th, 1957, the first human-made Earth satellite, Sputnik 1, was launched, opening the way for space exploration. And on October 10th, 1967, the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Peaceful Uses of Outer Space including the moon and other celestial bodies, was signed. Now, for obvious reasons, it's now known as the Outer Space Treaty. Now, this treaty forms the basis of international space law, and as of June 2019, 109 countries are parties to this treaty, while another 24 have signed the treaty but have not completed ratification. Among the Outer Space Treaty main points are... It prohibits the placing of weapons of mass destruction in space. It limits the use of the moon and other celestial bodies to peaceful purposes only. And it establishes that space shall be free for exploration and use by all nations, but that no nation may claim sovereignty of outer space or any celestial body. World Space Week is coordinated by the United Nations with the support of the World Space Week Association, or the WSWA. Now, the WSWA leads a global team of national coordinators who promote the celebration of World Space Week within their own countries. World Space Week consists of space education and outreach events held by space agencies, aerospace companies, schools, planetariums, museums, and astronomy clubs around the world in a common time frame. The goals of World Space Week include providing unique leverage in space outreach and education, educate people around the world about the benefits that they receive from space, encourage greater use of space for sustainable economic development, demonstrate public support for space programs, excite young people about STEM, and foster international cooperation in space outreach and education. There have been over 2 million people attending World Space Week events in recent years, and you are taking part in one right now just by listening to this podcast. So now you know a little bit about the World Space Week, and we'll take a short break right now, and when we return, it's time for some space news. Good morning. It's T-minus 45 minutes until the final countdown commences. In less than one hour, if all goes according to plan, the three members of the Apollo 11 crew will blast off in their... My father's name was Edwin Eugene 
Aldrin. Mankind's greatest adventure. I became Buzz. Destination, the moon. We look back at the Earth and watch it get smaller. Oh, it was beautiful. Apollo 11, this is Houston. I've got the morning news here if you're interested, over. Go ahead, Houston. Uh, an Irishman has won the world porridge eating championship by consuming 23 bowls of instant oatmeal. I'd like to enter Aldrin in the oatmeal eating contest next time. He's on his 19th bowl. Roger. Human nature and curiosity is to explore the world around us. And the world around us includes way beyond. Go, Houston, you're a go for landing, over. I do understand, go for landing. Roger, 1202, we copy you. We're go, same type, we're go. Okay, engine stop. We copy you down, Eagle. Magnificent ventilation. The next generation of explorers should not ever give up. On canvas with paint in the artist's school, it is red that is hot and blue that is cool. But in science we show, as the heat gets higher, a star will glow red like the coals of a fire. Raise the heat some more, and what is in sight? Behold, the star glows bright white. But the hottest of all, I say unto you, is neither red nor white when a star has turned blue. This is TGP Nominal. Welcome back to TGP Nominal. Now, on the show, we like to put a little bit of space news in uh, when we're doing one of our science facts shows, but we like to find some of the more unusual stories and bring them to you rather than the, the stories that you would get in the normal press. So um, I've got a story here. Did you know that Pluto is getting some new names for some of the features on the surface? Well, that's not surprising. I mean, they were they basically announced when uh, all of the New Horizons stuff came out that the names were interim until they were made official. Mm-hmm. So they've had some names already made official about two years ago, I think. But in the past, prior to the New Horizons mission, there wasn't much to name because, well, you couldn't really see much. (laughs) But now that the spacecraft has flown past Pluto and observed it up close, there are some real nice features that need naming. The International Astronomical Union has approved a new set of names for 14 of the planet's surface features. And notice I said the word planet, and I didn't say dwarf planet. I just cannot bring myself to do it. I I don't (laughs) care what Doc Brown says. <laughs> Let it go. Let it go. I would start singing, but then we'd probably get a copyright strike against us. Plus, plus we'd lose a lot of listeners for thinking, huh, you let him sing? Stop. Now, the New Horizons team have proposed these names themselves, and they've been using them unofficially for quite a few months now. The 14 surface features are named after people and missions that contributed to the understanding of Pluto and the Kuiper Belt. The names also include figures from mythology as well as the names of other missions and people associated with space exploration. 
The new names are applied to regions, mountain ranges, plains, valleys and craters that were observed when the New Horizons visited Pluto. Here are a few of them. I've only got four because these are probably the easiest of the ones to actually say. But there will be a link to the full list of the new names and maps of where they are located in the show notes. So the first one is the Lowell region named after Percival Lowell, the uh, American astronomer who founded the Lowell Observatory and organised a search for a planet beyond Neptune. The second one is called the Simonelli Crater, named after the astronomer Damon Simonelli, whose wide-ranging research included the formation history of Pluto. The next one is called the Venera Terra, named after the Soviet Union's Venera mission to Venus. Among other firsts, the Venera spacecraft were the first missions to return photos of the surface of another planetary surface. And the last one on my list is the Wright Mons, named after the brothers Orville and Wilbur Wright, the inventors of the first successful aeroplane. Well, you remember... uh... Oumuamua. Oh, yeah, the... the uh, our, our, our interstellar visitor. The cigar-shaped. Yeah. 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 Not the spaceship. That's, that's not what it was. <laughs> Thank you very much. We've got another one heading our way. All right. We've got another interstellar one. This is a comet called 2I Borisov. And, uh, yeah, it, it's actually been captured, remotely taken with the uh, Elena Robotic Unit as part of the Virtual Telescope Project. It was originally called Comet C-2019, that's all they had, but now it's dubbed 2I slash Borisov because it is the second interstellar object named after its discoverer, Crimean amateur astronomer Gennady Borisov. So he originally found it. Uh, They say that its orbit is now sufficiently well-known, although they say that it is unambiguously interstellar in origin. So it's received its final designation. As for the orbit, they've tracked it long enough that they know that it has an extremely hyperbolic orbit, a a wide arc that approaches from one direction and departs in the other, making it as an object just passing through our solar system. Who knows when we'll see it coming through here again. They've calculated that it will make its closest approach to the sun on December 7th, and will swing past the sun at a distance of roughly 300 million kilometers, or uh, 186 million freedom units, Uh, (laughs) Sorry, had to. Uh, Which is about twice as far as the distance between the Earth and the Sun. So the comet will become very visible only from the south. So you and I will not be able to partake in it. Uh, It will be easiest to spot during December and January, but will remain observable until later in 2020 as well. But again, you and I won't be able to see it. We're too far north. Mm. Well, So we've got our, our second one. Can't wait to see the theories that come up with this one, even though they've said flat out, it's a comet, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going there. <laughs> no. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we could get in trouble if we do. Do you remember those images of the uh, Japanese aerospace explorations Hayabusa 2 passing so close to the surface of the asteroid Ryugu that you could actually see the shadow of the spacecraft? Those were amazing. To think that they were that close to an asteroid, that's cool stuff. Well, this was part of JAXA's program to study near-Earth asteroids. This mission has spent over a year conducting landing operations, and they've also been collecting samples from the surface that will eventually be returned to Earth. 
On September the 16th, Hayabusa 2 released two target markers as part of its target marker separation operation, which I'm assuming is an acronym. This consisted of two 10-centimetre or 4-inch balls covered in reflective material being released into the orbit around the asteroid. This operation puts the mission a step closer to the deployment of the mission's Minerva 112 or Rover 2, which is much easier to say. Landing on the asteroid surface next month, originally scheduled for September the 5th, the operation was postponed due to an abnormality that was detected in one of the spacecraft's reaction wheels. Once the issue was resolved, the mission team brought the spacecraft to an altitude of about one kilometre, 3,300 feet, away from the surface of the asteroid where the two target markers were deployed to the equatorial and polar orbits. After that, the spacecraft ascended to an altitude of 20 kilometres, or 12.4 miles above the surface, and then from that position, the spacecraft's optical camera continuously observes the target markers as they orbit slowly and descend towards Ryugu. Thanks to the reflective coating on the markers, their trajectories as they orbit and descend will be easily monitored. In the end, the purpose of the target markers is to act as navigation aids, which will help the mission controllers prepare for the deployment of Hayabusa 2's Minerva 112, or as I said before, it's known as Rover 2, which is scheduled to take place later this month. Like the previous Rover 1, Rover 2 will land on the surface, hop around to relocate and conduct science operations with its suite of scientific instruments which include two cameras, a thermometer, an accelerometer and a load of other ones, which these will represent the final phase of Hayabusa 2's science campaign on Ryugu, which will end this December, followed by the spacecraft returning to Earth, arriving by December 2020, so it's going to take a year to get back. By the end of the mission, the spacecraft will have deployed three mobile landers to explore the surface of Ryugu. So you've got the two Minerva rovers and uh, a larger mobile asteroid surface scout, acronym, MASCOT. (laughs) This lander was developed by the German Aerospace Centre, DLR, and France's National Centre for Space Studies, or CNES. That landed on the surface with Rover 1 in September of 2018, where it explored for 17 hours before its battery died. It has also conducted a number of landings to gather samples for the return to Earth. These will be studied extensively by scientists to learn more about the early history of the solar system. This could offer clues on how water was distributed and assuming organic matter is found, and how and when life emerged as well. If we have 0.1 grams of material, we can do all the sample analysis, but we hope that we will have much more than that, said Professor Mikoto Yoshikawa, who was the uh, 
Hayabusa 2's mission manager at JAXA. We want to study the organic matter of Ryugu because we want to know the origin of life on Earth. And we think Ryugu has original matter that became life. So our main purpose is analysis of the organic matter on the surface of Ryugu. But they only need 0.1 grams of material to do all the analysis that they need to do. That's pretty amazing. That is cool. That one space probe has done so much in quite a small amount of time. Yeah, and it's still got a lot more to do. Did you know that the entire code for the Apollo 11 is now available? Everything. Every subsystem everything that went into Apollo 11 regarding the you know the the programming of it is available online wow now granted you need to be able to understand assembler to know what it's doing <laughs> not many of us know assembler anymore i certainly don't but uh, it's actually all available on github that's pretty amazing i think it's kind of funny how nasa scrubbed so much information over time that they somehow managed to retain this <laughs> i was taking a look at it I know tiny, tiny, tiny amounts of assembler. I know what some assembler commands do, but yeah, it's all out there. It's a very interesting read, I must say, but it's all out on GitHub. Something more near and dear to our hearts, the James Webb Telescope is finally assembled. Yeah. It's still scheduled to march in 2021, but uh, according to Bill Ox, the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center uh, project manager, he said the assembly of the telescope and its scientific instruments, sunshield, and the spacecraft into one observatory represents an incredible achievement by the entire Webb team. So, you know, of course, all of, all of that stuff. Uh, this is, of course, the spiritual successor in a lot of ways to the uh, Hubble Space Telescope. But so they said that using a crane, thankfully, did we need to be told that it was using a crane? <laughs> they didn't lift it by their hands. Thank you. Engineers gently lowered the telescope element, which consists of the optical and scientific gear, onto the body. Although the foldable sun shield, which will obviously keep it protected, was already connected to the spacecraft. They obviously connected the two pieces mechanically, and now it's testing time. And as uh, we've been told in the past, if they could do testing until the end of time, they would do testing till the end of time. So it's, I'm sure she's going to be rigorously tested, but... Finally, one more step closer to getting that thing launched. Well, when I was talking to uh, Mark McCorcoran from the European Space Agency, he will be actually given some time to work with James Webb Space Telescope to do some of his research. Oh, cool. And um, I'm hoping that when he gets some of these results back that he might come back on the show and tell us about it. Ooh, that'd be nice. Now, have you seen the amazing image that's been doing the rounds recently of the shadow of Jupiter's moon Io yes. passing over the planet's surface? It's, it's beautiful. That is cool. Now, that was taken by the Juno Cam uh, on board NASA's Juno spacecraft, which continues to provide Earthbound humans with a steady stream of st stunning images of Jupiter. Now, this image was processed by a guy called Kevin Gill, a NASA software engineer who has produced other stunning images of Jupiter, which we will include a link to in the show notes. The image is made up of data captured by Juno when it was about 8,000 kilometres above Jupiter's surface. Juno follows an extremely elliptical orbit around Jupiter. Diving in close and risking extreme radiation exposures, 
then looping far away to a distance of over 8 million kilometres. Io is a very large moon. It's roughly the same size as Earth's own moon, yet it casts only a small shadow on the enormous Jupiter, emphasising the planet's immense size and its status as the solar system's largest planet. Although we're calling it a shadow, it's really the same as a solar eclipse here on Earth, but due to the massive size difference between Earth and Jupiter, a shadow seems more appropriate. I mean, is that not what happens during a solar eclipse? You know, it's the moon casting its shadow on the Earth. Yeah, pretty much. It's it's accurate. But it's just the fact that the, the sizes are virtually the same when they cross over or from the distances that they are, so they look like that the whole thing is covered. But in this case, because of the size difference, you only get a small... Well, it's not that small, actually. It's quite a big shadow across... It is. So Jupiter has a, has a powerful effect on everything that it's close to. So the Juno spacecraft takes its high elliptical orbit to protect itself from Jupiter's extreme radiation belts. All of the spacecraft's electronics are housed inside titanium vaults to protect them. Its instruments will eventually succumb to the radiation and the spacecraft will be sent to its destruction in Jupiter's atmosphere, but that's possibly going to be a long way off yet. Now, Jupiter is also responsible for Io's volcanic activity. The gas giant's immense gravity pulls on the moon, generating friction and the heat inside Io. This melts the rock and creates volcanic activity. The other moons contribute to this tidal heating too. In the show notes, along with the Juno cam image of Io's shadow over Jupiter, you will find another image of Io orbiting Jupiter with one of Io's many volcanoes erupting. The difference with this is that this image was captured in 2007 by the New Horizons spacecraft when it was on its way to Pluto. You and I know, obviously, of the X-37B, the top-secret U.S. Air Force space plane that's been going around. Nobody knows what it's doing. Well, except those in the military, of course. It now has broken its previous spaceflight duration record. In fact, it broke it back on August 26th. Its previous record was 717 days, 20 hours, and 42 minutes. So we are now a little over a month past that. So the current mission began on September 7, 2017. It uh, took off from a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. Obviously, no one except those who are running it know exactly what it's doing. And they're always very general when they discuss the, the issue, saying that the primary objectives of the X-37B are twofold, reusable spacecraft technologies for America's future in space and operating experiments which can be returned to and examined on Earth. Technologies being tested in the program include advanced guidance, navigation and control, thermal protection systems, avionics, high-temperature structures and seals, conformal reusable insulation, lightweight electromechanical flight systems, advanced propulsion systems, advanced materials and autonomous orbital flight, re-entry, and re-landing, which says a whole lot of nothing. (laughs) Pretty much nothing that other spacecraft have probably done. Yeah, you know, to me, that also kind of says, you know, shuttle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, well, and, well, I guess that's not uh, not quite ironic either, since the X-37B looks a lot like a small shuttle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, 
It's basically uh, Dream Chaser's uh, secret squirrel cousin, pretty much. Yeah, actually, oh, I don't have the article in front of me. Uh, didn't Dream Chaser get the okay to launch or something? It got some kind of an approval. Yeah, it's they are working with ULA, I believe. They, right, they have ULA as a launch partner, which is... No big surprise. Yeah. I thought it received something else beyond yeah, that, like a, it's, some kind of a ready status. It's, well, it is ready. It's just um, they at the press conference, they were hoping for a bit more, but um, they've still got plans for crude status. But, yeah, they're keeping that very close to the chest, but at the moment it's still only going to be cargo. Yeah, because I was watching that too, and that's pretty much what it came down to is, yeah, we're, we're working with ULA. Which was kind of, all right, yeah, well, you guys usually work with ULA. Mm -hmm. Why is this a surprise? But, eh, whatever. I mean, uh, I mean, they could, they could use it on, on anything now because the way that the, the wings fold on it, that uh, you could put it in um, SpaceX vehicles. It's good that it's got actually going to see space. Oh, I yeah. Mean, we've, we've I'm been, definitely eager to see that thing go. We've been following this machine for such a long time yeah we have when they had that point where it was going to be scrapped completely and then it's you know it's been a bit of a a phoenix from the flames if you like yeah okay we can't have the shuttle back but that seems like a good alternative mm -hmm. if it's going to go up like a, any other kind of cargo well then why not i mean if they need to use some kind of vehicle as an emergency repair thing that could possibly be the vehicle for the job. Yeah, yeah, it could be. So, who knows? Did you watch the uh, uh, Chandrayaan 2 attempt at landing their, their little probe on the moon? Yeah, that was unfortunate. That was, that was really neat to watch. There was definitely some pride thinking, cool, another country is, is going to get something on the moon, this is cool, and those last few minutes when they lost contact with it. Oh, man. Didn't they get some imagery from, I think, LRO or something afterwards saying that it landed, yeah. but it just landed the wrong way up? Yeah, and, and it probably landed really hard. Mm -hmm. It had started its descent, and it was in the process of slowing down, and they lost contact with it. So probably a rocket misfired. I guess there's no real way to know, but you could hear everybody's hearts just sinking. Mm-hmm. As they try to reestablish contact, it's like, eh, not happening. But, I mean, on the plus side, the orbiter is what was going to do most of the experiments anyway. Like, I think they said 90% of the experiments are actually going to be done by the orbiter, and that's fine. That's up there doing its thing. But it would have been cool to see India successfully landed on the moon. That would have been neat. Yeah, I mean, their space program has been pretty successful over the last few years. I mean, I don't think they've had that many non-conforming uh, missions, uh, you know, in, yeah. in respect to them working. <laughs> and I know that the UK Space Agency send a lot of stuff up on Indian spacecraft. Even NASA told them flat out, congratulations on what you did. We understand space is hard. Mm -hmm. And you and I have been saying that since day one as well. Oh, yeah. Space is hard. Did you hear about what uh, China found? Because they've got a lunar rover on the far side of the moon. Oh, yes, 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 yes. They, they, have, they found a gel-like substance. <laughs> well, that's vague. <laughs> Between the gel-like substance and the Israeli rover that crashed and had those uh, tardigrades on mm -hmm. it, uh, we've got life on the moon now when you think about it, assuming that they survived the crash. But it looks like those things are pretty much indestructible. We've 
potentially got life on the moon now. Oops. I'm just picturing things like the tardigrades landing in whatever this gel-like substance is. Teenage Mutant Ninja Tardigrades? Hey, Michelangelo, how come you're not shouting Cowabunga? Well, to be honest, I'm getting kind of bored with it. Hey, how about this? Yabba Dabba! Nah, it's just not you. You know you're with me on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, space has definitely been interesting in the past few months. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, you had a little bit of uh, an event that you went to. So we're going to have a, uh, another short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Hi, I'm Dallas Campbell, and welcome to Space Rocks. Beneath you is groaning and creaking, cryogenic fuel is boiling off, and then you get the word from your Russian instructor, we're off. This is a galaxy cluster forming right there. And we're very, very lucky to have the project scientist of Rosetta with us here. Please welcome Matt Taylor! I'm a local lad, born in London, so it's nice to come back here and talk to people and say, you too can go to European Space Station. It's been brilliant. Uh, the reaction from the audience has been wonderful. The questions have been great. I've learned an awful lot. Nice to meet you. You can have the Earth. Brian May's been here, one of my own heroes. How cool is this? <laughs> thank you so much. Cheers, Brian. Thank you very much. Too. I've really loved it. Who said we have a problem? This is TGP Nominal. So if you are a regular listener to the podcast, you will know that on the latest episode of TGP Nominal Extra, Senior Advisor for Science and Exploration at the European Space Agency, Mark McCoy, Corcoran came on board to give us a preview of what to expect at a literally out-of-this-world event called Space Rocks that he co-founded. Now, Space Rocks is a festival of space exploration in association with the European Space Agency. It's a unique gathering of the best and brightest in every scientific and creative field, but it's all united by a common passion to explore. TGP nominal contributor Alan Taylor Shearer and our resident astronomer Ross Hockham and myself, of course, met up at the Indigo at the O2 Arena in London for the three-session event that took place on the 21st of September. Alan Taylor Shearer and I had attended the Space Rocks inaugural event back in April 2018, which was a bit of a pilgrimage for Alan because he got to meet one of his idols. Brian May. And to be honest, being in the same room as Brian May, Tim Peake and Matt Taylor, the project scientist at the European Space Agency on the Rosetta mission, you might remember him, the guy with the beard and the tattoos and the loud shirts, that was very surreal. <laughs> For 2019, we decided to invite Ross Hockham along to spread the word about his UK astronomy charity. Now, I caught up with Ross earlier today to chat with him about his first Space Rocks experience and his highlights of the first session of the day. 
So, Ross, Space Rocks, it was your first time. What was that like for you? Brilliant. <laughs> well, like I say, space does rock, doesn't it? It does. Uh, yeah, it was really nice. Uh, it was at the O2, wasn't it, in London? Yep. And it was in the, was it the Indigo Room? Yeah, the Indigo at the O2. Indigo at the O2. I've never been there. I've been to the O2, but never been to the Indigo before. Never even really noticed it. And uh, I got there a little bit early, had a nice coffee, so it was a nice day for me, chilled out. The uh, the underground was good. It was behaving itself, so it was nice. And because uh, I was there a little bit early, I decided to have a little stroll around the O2. And it was a lovely day, wasn't it? It was really nice, clear blue sky. The moon was up as well, so I was kind of like already in the zone because I'd taken a few pictures of like the buildings and the moon. So by the time I met up with you and Alan, I was already kind of like a little bit like, oh, this is a really nice day out. <laughs> and then, yeah, then we, then we walked into this room, didn't we? And it was like, it's almost, it's very dark in there. But the, the mood lighting is awesome. Had a big space rocks, didn't it, on the stage. As the sign for the whole thing, the logo. There was a rocket on the right-hand side, wasn't there? Yeah, that was an Ariane 6. And yeah, they had this really nice sort of like bluey, almost like, you know, spacey-like like neon lighting, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Seats everywhere. And yes, yeah, the first impressions, I walked in and thought, oh man, this looks cool. <laughs> and it was it was pretty much full, wasn't it? The the seating, uh, well, the downstairs ones was were full. I couldn't really see the upstairs from there, but uh, yeah, yeah. I don't think there was many spaces left, was there at all? And it was it looked mostly there were quite a lot of kids there as well, weren't there? The uh, the first session was set up for younger kids in mind, to be honest. It worked for me. <laughs> I understood it all. <laughs> yeah. So then we kind of we kind of walked around a little bit, didn't we? And had a little nosy and took some pictures. Yeah. So I didn't actually know any of the layout or who was coming on or anything. I was just pretty much I was just tagging along with you because you were doing some interviews later on, and I and you invited me kindly. So I thought, yeah, I'm just going to come along, sit in the background, and just kind of enjoy the day. The first session was called Space Academy, mm-hmm. and it was hosted by Harry Potter and Star Trek Discovery star Jason Isaacs. Uh, so he was the compare for for that section, and he was brilliant. Wasn't he, he was. Um, he was really down to earth, threw some jokes in. He actually sat on the stage, didn't he, and got kids up and asked them questions afterwards and things, didn't he, to to like immerse them. More. And to be honest with you, as as the day went on, because the different sessions were aimed at different age groups, the kind of humour changed slightly. So uh, I think you can get where I'm coming from with that. Um, <laughs> it was good. <laughs> so the first person on stage was Susie Ember, and she's a planetary scientist for ESA. So she was talking about working at ESA on the BepiColombo mission, which is on its way to Mercury. Which I found really interesting, like because that's my thing, isn't it? I love the planets and stuff like that, and I like finding about all the bodies out there. When she was talking about Mercury and, you know, everything about it, what they're trying to figure out and how it's formed and all the different you know features on it i mean i really enjoyed that it was really good and she was very good at it wasn't she yeah well she's done a a few of these now um these kind of events i think she's done two other space rocks not space rocks days but space rock stages at other festivals and things yeah so she's, she's she's pretty well clued up on how to do public speaking she put an animation up didn't she of how they get to mercury and it takes them like seven years or something like that wasn't mm-hmm. it because they actually have to because mercury's so small it's really hard to get an orbit around it yeah <laughs> because the sun's quite close and that's got a lot of uh gravity so i think the first one you'll probably know the names of all of them but the first probe there went around the sun and as it passed mercury it took pictures and stuff and learned about it, it went around the sun again still going around now 
from what I've yeah, heard. Yeah, it is, yeah. Still flying around. Then the second one, was it Messenger, wasn't it? It was Messenger, yeah. Was it Messenger that went there? And that kind of managed to get in a sort of orbit, didn't it? Mm-hmm. And then they crashed into it. And they have to go around in orbit and almost like speed it up by going near Earth, near Venus, near Earth, near Venus, and all these sort of things, don't they? Yeah. And then they have to then slow it down <laughs> to be able to get within Mercury. So it's really cool how she explained the orbits and how they actually slingshot and slow down using the planets and stuff rather than fuel. It saves lots of weight and money. It's basically the same thing that they did to get to the moon, really. Really clever, in a way, because you've got all that energy there mm-hmm. that you can harness, really. So, yeah, that was really good. I really enjoyed her. She was good. So who was next? It was the rocket lady. So the lady that we're talking about is ESA's propulsion engineer, Kate Underhill. With her tennis balls. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she was showing how thrust works and things through getting kids up on stage and throwing tennis balls about and stuff. Which I, I thought worked really well because like, it made them think about an orbit is technically free fall, isn't it? You're just falling around the Earth constantly. Yeah. And a good way to show that is if you drop a tennis ball, it just goes straight down because gravity is obviously pulling it down. But if you throw it, it goes further and down. So if you throw it far enough it will constantly be falling because of the curve of the Earth. For, for kids, there's a fantastic way to show them how that works. And she was pregnant. Yeah, she was. Very, hev- very heavily pregnant as well. <laughs> Trying to pick up tennis balls, she had to get kids to pick them up for her. She's like, I, I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so hat off to her, man, for actually going up there and doing it as well. Now, there was one thing that we did notice uh, about Kate's talk, and that was she was describing uh, the weights of fuel and fuel consumption and things like that by using animals. Now, this is not the first time we've come across this, is it, Ross? <laughs> no. I believe you're the one that started it at Moondown. <laughs> yeah. I remember. Whether you stole it from her, whether she stole it from you, um, it, I'd like to think she stole it from you. It's a common thing, <laughs> actually, in space exploration to talk about weights and thrust ratios with elephants. Now, she was not using elephants. She was using pretty much the majority of London Zoo, to be honest with you. Yeah, it sounded like um, it. She had hippos and polar bears and... Blue whales. (laughs) And all kinds of... But she wasn't doing the the takeoff or the liftoff of a Saturn V like we were conducting at Moon Day, I think... Which one was it? I think it was. I think it was an Ariane, but it, it may have been a space. That, that rings. Yeah, it may have been an Ariane. Um, she was talking about each part, wasn't she? Yeah. She was like, "Well, this part weighs this much, but then you need this much fuel to get it on there to get that bit up." So it's like, so you need this bit needs, you know, a giraffe to get it going. Then this bit, which is the second part, you now need the giraffe and a hippo, and then for this bit, you need a giraffe, a hippo. And, and a polar bear. An elephant. Yeah. <laughs> and that, yeah, that's how she did it. And that was really good because, like, I understood it. Mm-hmm. Rather than talking about, oh, no, you need 20,000, you need 10 times this or 20 times that. No, animals. That's basically why I, I chose. <laughs> elephants was the best one for me to use because elephants being a quite a big animal and you need a certain amount of fuel and oxidizer to be able to lift a Saturn V. So. Working out the average weight of an elephant and then working out the fuel and 
and putting it all together, then I worked out that that, that would have worked out to be 763 elephants. So that worked quite well. And then um, also that, that's for the thrust ratio. And then to actually tell the kids how much fuel that actually is, I did it in the form of Olympic-sized swimming pools. Which everyone knows. Because kids go swimming, they know how big things are in a swimming pool. So it was like one and a half swimming pools full of fuel. That's what you have to do with those sort of things, don't you? Because who's an astrophysicist or a rocket scientist? Barely anyone. What one? Not even 1% probably of the world. So they can understand all that, but they've then got to be able to put it into layman's terms for us, mm -hmm. us common folk <laughs> who only just got GCSEs. <laughs> <laughs> Following on from that, we had um, Tim Peake. Um, Tim Peake wasn't talking about his time in the space station, uh, which he covered pretty much last year. Um, he was talking about the future, which seemed to all, funnily enough, be around the moon. Yeah. Which for me is wicked because... Mm -hmm. Oh man, if, I'd say if, we are. By the sounds of it, we're definitely going back to the moon. It's just a case of when and how. Mm -hmm. But I won't ruin it because you had an interview with him, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I won't talk too much about that because I think you asked him a few questions in that. But um, we, we didn't catch the end of Tim's talk because we were ushered over to the media, the media suite where we were, well, basically conducting interviews. And you said to me, oh, do you want me to come as well? And I said, yeah, you don't want to miss this. So <laughs> Yeah, I didn't know if I was allowed because technically I was tagging on to Mark. <laughs> and this is, this is his area of expertise now, nothing to do with me. I'm not interviewing anyone. I was like, I'm going to take a step back. And uh, I'll just enjoy, you know, just watching. And then I ended up getting selfies with everyone, <laughs> didn't I? Yeah. I couldn't help myself. I was like, oh, my God, I know him. Can I have a picture of you? Thank you. That was just complete mayhem, wasn't Mad. it? <laughs> it was madness, wasn't it? We had... It was, it was almost like speed dating, but with celebrities and ESA scientists. and But they, the, the staff did really well, didn't they? The Space Rock staff. Because mm. she did. I mean, the late, there was a lady that I mainly was watching, and she kind of... She did make sure she'd walk over and she'd write, have you been with them yet? Yeah. Have you had them yet? Yeah, right. I'll get them to come to you next. I'll get them to you. And she did quite a good job of making sure everyone kind of got in there, didn't they? Yeah. I'd, I'd like to give her a mention. I think her name was Emma. And, um, yeah, she was pretty much coordinating everybody's time. So it did work. It, it worked. It worked in a way because <laughs> um, uh, you had people coming through the door that... They'd only just arrived, actually, in the building. They'd literally just arrived, and they're like... <laughs> Put their coat down, and that's it. In there, yeah, speak to, to that person. <laughs> talk to him, talk to him, talk to him. Now you're on stage. <laughs> Bless him. But everyone was really nice, weren't they? They were really pleasant. Yeah. They didn't really seem happy to chat to you, happy to be there. Yeah. You think it's a long day for them. They've just been on stage. They've had to get into London. They've done the whole talk on stage, and they've thrown straight into this... Was it like a little hot gazebo -y thing? It was. It, it, it was... <laughs> It looked very space age in many respects because the walls were kind of plastic in the the initial shots of Star Wars, those white corridors. Yeah. It was a bit like yeah, that. Yeah, so just walked into, into a Corvette or something. Yeah. Not a car. A Carillion Corvette. But yeah, so that was that was quite cool, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. I was well happy because, you know, who walks in? 
Tim Pete walked in. I didn't actually know he was going to be in there. I thought he'd maybe, you know, because he's quite sought after. So, you know, I thought he was just there for the talking and maybe go. Well, last, last year, Tim Peake was out of bounds for interviews. When he was talking, it was all about going back to the moon, wasn't yeah. it? So he's, I think he's there as, you know, a representative now for that drive. Yeah. You know, five years ago, I had a tiny little 50-pound telescope and saw Jupiter. Now I'm stood at Space Rocks in the interview area next to Tim Peake. It just shows what you can do if you have that passion, isn't it? And like with you, mm-hmm. you created your own podcast, and here you are. Yeah. Interviewing Tim Peake, and you just think, that's crazy. So for anyone out there who's kind of like, you know, go for your dream and your passion. Do it. Because if you work hard enough and you don't give up, you could be next to Tim Peake. I mean, we got selfies with him, didn't we? Yeah. And I managed to throw in, hello, I'm from UK Astronomy, I run a charity. He probably won't remember, but I, I had two missions that day. My wife said, one, you need to tell Tim Peake about UK Astronomy. So I did it, and I had to get the selfie to prove it. And the other one was uh, Jason Isaac. So I, my mate Dan is a science teacher, and he does quite a lot of the worksheets for the kids for us. He loves Star Trek. So he said to me, like he was like, oh, he's there, because he saw the post, and he was like, I bet you can't get a, you know, a selfie with him, a picture with him. Not only did I get a picture of him, he did a Vulcan welcome as well with his hand mm-hmm. or, or a wave. So because I asked him to, and he was he was really nice as well, and he was quite happy to do that. So mission complete for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I really wanted to try and get Tim as one of our honorary crew members, but that didn't actually happen because time permitting, it it he had to go. Yeah, it he? just had to fall by the wayside. But there's going to be other opportunities. So, but yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed the day. Like the whole day of it was fantastic. And then there's there's an evening as well, isn't there? So we missed the next lot of talks, didn't we? But luckily, the people that were in that second session were also just before that in the media suite with us so we actually got to talk to them before they actually went on stage and that's why the turnaround was so quick because they had to go from there back onto stage and then do their bit so it was all as i say a bit manic at that point so when we finished in there well we didn't quite finish in there alan went off to see if he could get some more photographs from the main areas and we were still in the media suite and you had been talking with these guys from uh, a website called The Expanse Lives, didn't you? Yeah, it's completely my fault. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm like? You put me in a room, I don't shut up, I just talk to people. So what happened was I was taking a picture, a selfie of Tim Peake next to me and pulling a silly face, as you do, just kind of like, oh, my God, Tim Peake's right there. And uh, one of the, the things is a girl, wasn't it? She was like a robotic scientist or something, wasn't she? Um, she, she was studying, studying yeah, yeah, for her exams. Bless her. So she was very intelligent. Um, she was from Germany, I think. It was either Holland yeah. or Germany she was from. Yeah. She's like, it's mad, isn't it, that you're right next to Tim? And I was like, yeah, it's awesome. I said, you're going to interview him? She's like, yeah, hopefully. And then she just said, so, so what do you do? So I told her, obviously, about UK Astronomy and Charity and how it started. And then she kind of went, oh, that's a lovely story. That's really nice. And she went off, didn't think of anything of it. And at the end of all the interviews, uh, the guy there that was kind of in charge, wasn't he? Well, he, he knew how to use all the equipment. Yeah. <laughs> he came over and kind of like, he, he, he asked me and was like, so how did you start? Yeah, yeah. she told me about it. Would, uh, would it be okay to interview you? And I was like, uh, I'm not a scientist or anything. I'm not professional, you know that. You know, I'm just 
And he's like, no, 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 that's why we want to do it. He said, because everyone here is kind of, you know, they're part of the ESA or NASA or paid or blah, but you're, you're here and you're, you know, a nobody. Really? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, cool, that sounds good. And then I stupidly managed to rope you in it as well, didn't I? Yeah, I was caught, I was like, caught on the hop a little bit because I kind of got the gist that you might have been asked to be interviewed. And then it was a case of, well, do, do you want to be interviewed as well for, for the show? And I was like, well... So, you... so the interviewer becomes the interviewer. Yeah. Well, I'm, and yeah, because I, I said that Mark, I was like, oh, Mark has done it as well. Pointing to him straight away. I was like, he's, he's, you know, he's made his own podcast, you know, just like in his house. And now he's here as well. So, yeah, we ended up sitting on a sofa together, didn't we? Yeah. And it's the first time <laughs> that I've been actually wired up because uh, it was like going on TV because you had the microphones that you had to stick up your shirt and attach to your collar and all that kind of stuff and you had you know the battery pack and all that kind of stuff and I've never had to do that before uh, luckily there was no one doing makeup or anything <laughs> so we're all right <laughs> but no I've never had to do no not like that not properly a few radio things and stuff but generally like over the phone or you know some uh, university students and stuff come to events and ask for a little chat and that but yeah that was it was kind of almost like a bit more professional, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, they had the gear, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, they were very professional, yeah. But, yeah, they were, they were, again, they were lovely people, weren't they? They were really nice and chatty. And... Yeah. So I said, let us know when it's on there and we'll get the link and we can put it up and I'll stick it in the Facebook group so that everyone can see me and you. <laughs> <laughs> poor, poor people. So up in the Space Lounge you had... Um, the meteorite guy who's Jeff Notkin and he was obviously teaching people about the, the meteorites and stuff and he was also selling them as well which was uh, yeah which you had to drag me away from <laughs> last time I went to one of those events I did buy a piece of the moon didn't I yeah but there were some big bits there and those bits were going for thousands of pounds I was too scared when it's priced per kilogram or, or gram I had to walk away yeah <laughs> I thought, oh, I really want that. How much is it? And then he'd probably say something like five hundred pounds, and I'd be like, whoa, I'm okay. <laughs> one day, one day, I'll get a nice bit. I need a bit of Mars, but it's got to be a decent size so that the kids can actually see it, not just a little red bit of dust. Mm -hmm. And that's going to cost. So we um, then went over to the the ESA stand, and uh, we were talking to one of the girls there. And um, she gave you some posters and stuff for your um, for your talks and stuff, didn't she? And I was kind of like ended up going away with like a whole armful of stickers and posters, and I didn't have the heart to tell her that I had to go back to my you know where I work, and I had to put half it in my locker because I was on the motorbike. Yeah. <laughs> so they're all still in my locker. If they open my locker at work now, they're going to be geek. <laughs> but yeah, bless her. She was really nice as well, wasn't she? And she was chatty. And I managed to get myself a Rosetta pin, pin badge, yeah, which was really cool. nice. Um, and then from there, I introduced you to the... All About Space Team. Yeah. It was the chief editor or the editor-in-chief of All About Space magazine. That was Gemma Lavender. And uh, you'd already met Lee Cavendish when we were down in the uh, media suite because he was doing uh, interviews down there. Yeah, he was, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a nice chap as well. Yeah. He remembered me from last year. We got a selfie with him, didn't I? Because they donated a magazine to me, bless them. Yeah. They donated a whole magazine about Mars. It's actually one of their books, isn't it? The 
Yeah, they do like uh, special editions almost, don't they? Mm. I've, I've already bought the one about the moon because obviously for Moon Day back in June, July. And then, uh, yeah, so the Mars one will be cool for next year when we, you know, end up going back closer to it in orbit. I can have a read through and be good for the podcast. So, yeah, it's really kind of them. I mean, like everyone there was just so, you know, willing to give over information, help. This is why we work hand in hand with with organizations like space rocks so yeah i'm really pleased that things like this are really you know they're really pushing it aren't they now? yeah and what, what one amazing. one thing I'd, I'd like to say before we finish this section is um i'd also like to thank Gemma from all about space because she gave me one of their hundredth issue anniversary space patches and that was really nice touch. So yeah, thanks for that. And you and you picked up some space rock ones, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I bought those. That I bought there. those. <laughs> <laughs> Mark went into his pocket and he bought a few patches. I have to. It's my thing. I have to. I have to have patches. <laughs> for some of the people who might be joining us for the first time from the World Space Week website, um, tell them a little bit about UK astronomy. Well, I always have to start with me. <laughs> don't I it's all about me uh, UK Astronomy is pretty much a uh, charity well it is a charity that uh, myself and my wife kind of uh, accidentally created because uh, she bought me a little telescope for about £50 for my birthday which is in September funnily enough so it's our five year anniversary coming up she bought me it I went into my garden in Milton Keynes I looked through this tiny little telescope and I saw the planet Jupiter and it's four moons and I was hooked. That was it. I ran out and bought a massive, huge, like, 10-inch white Dobsonian. Google it. <laughs> Skywatcher Dobsonian. Great telescope. Uh, yeah, went out, saw everything I wanted to see in a, a nice dark field rather than Milton Keynes where I live. And, uh, yeah, I had just wanted to find other people in the area just to go out stargazing. I just wanted to go out and learn from people. And couldn't really find anyone about. So my wife decided, well, why don't you just make a Facebook group? and see, you know, if you can find anyone in the area and see if they come to you. Five years later, there are 4,800 people on there. <laughs> We're now a registered charity, and pretty much on all my days off, I'm out teaching other people about the stars. <laughs> so it's gone completely the other way around. Instead of me trying to find someone to teach me, I've ended up learning myself and kind of going out and learning from others, and now I kind of teach them. So that's what UK Astronomy is. We're just a charity that goes out and hopefully we're going to have enough funding to go and get a mobile observatory so we can take it anywhere. All into a van, wrapped, all in, events, tent, projectors, screens, power, the lot. And then we can just take the skies to you. That's my dream. And um, where can people find you? You can find us at www.ukastronomy.org. That's the website. You can also find us on Facebook. There's a Facebook group, which is where the 4,800 people are, that just all chat all around the UK. Uh, they're really helpful in there. Any problem, they kind of run themselves. If someone asks a question, they all answer it. So I don't really have to get too involved in it, which is really nice because it's a community of uh, astronomers, you know, from all all ranges beginners to professionals so you can find us there there's a facebook page as well because that's the group the page is where i post what's going on in the month each you know like a night or two before this is happening with jupiter this is going on there which we usually do with this podcast don't we but this month is so busy with space week space rocks all these events that it's entirely my fault i haven't had time to write it <laughs> so that's my fault but yeah you can find us there on the website 
and uh, there's a email as well which is just info at ukastronomy.org and that comes straight to me so yeah if you want any events in the Buckinghamshire area at the moment that'll be me hopefully awesome so if I don't see you before, you'll be yep. back about this time next month for our TGP Nominal Extra Guide to November Skies. So I do have to apologise for not having one this month because it is my fault, it's not Mark's fault. No worries. Well, Ross, thanks again for coming on board. Thank you for having me. And as I said on the Facebook page, if you do want to see what's going on in a month, I will be posting on there, so it will be there. Unfortunately, we didn't get to see much of the second session because we were all in an area called the Media Suite. And then by the time the third session came around, the three of us had been on the go since 6.30 in the morning. And to be honest with you, the force was weak. (laughs) As Ross mentioned earlier in the piece that uh, I recorded with him, the Media Suite was a bit like going speed dating. It's strange. The first session finished at about half past two and we were told to meet by the stage doors at 2.15 and we were taken round to the media suite. Basically, we were given an hour or so to interview as many people as we could in that time. The problem with that was, well, not exactly a problem, We didn't know who we were going to get to interview at any particular time and people were coming in and out at all times. So somebody could be coming through that door and we just get thrust into their face pretty much and interview them. I managed to get quite a few interviews and as I say, some of them are myself on my own talking with these people and some of them are with other media outlets. Um, I'm not 100% sure on who these media outlets are apart from one which i know was all about space magazine because the guy that was doing the interviews for them was the same guy who did it last year and it was a guy called lee cavendish and he remembered me from last year i hope that's a good sign (laughs) he could have remembered you for something not so nice (laughs) I i was remembered by other people as well so that's good that's pretty cool so let's go into the interviews that i actually conducted now the first one was somebody that was mentioned in ross's piece called susie imber who is a planetary scientist for the european space agency and she's also the winner of a bbc tv show called astronauts do you have what it takes and she got her job with the european space agency by taking part in this programme. And uh, this is what she had to say. Oh, I've done a few space rocks now, actually, and uh, I love the audience this morning. So uh, this afternoon I just gave her a talk about Mercury, and it was took quite a young audience. So that was really nice to kind of inspire some kids who were listening carefully. They answered the questions correctly at the end, so obviously they were listening. Um, and it's a different audience than normal. You know, I lecture students and I give public outreach talks, but kind of different people, families come, and I really like that side of space rocks. Is, is it important to you to, to talk to the next generation, to kids? Oh, yeah, in the last year and a half, I've spoken to 40,000 kids in their classrooms, so it's a big part of my job and a big part of yeah, my career is trying to encourage more people to be interested in science, definitely. Do you have any advice for, for youngsters who are thinking of a career in science like yourself? Do I have any advice? Um, 
I would say that I fell into this career rather than actively deciding to follow a specific path because I really loved it. So I think, you know, it's all about kind of following the things that interest you most and just keep going. Even if maybe you're interested in physics, but perhaps at school it doesn't seem that inspiring, actually do lots of reading outside of school and just keep, keep your enthusiasm going because the higher up you get in the education system, the better it gets and the more interesting it gets until you really get into research, which is you know, where I am now, which is why I love my job. Going back to your time when you was on the the TV show, well, it just hates to be an astronaut. Yeah. Is that is accurate to what you would have had to have done to to get into the to the program? That's a really good question. So, astronauts, do you have what it takes? The the primary judge on the show was uh, Chris Hadfield, uh, Commander Chris Hadfield. Yeah. Been in space three times, um, and so he was the one that was making sure that the tests that we were doing were were appropriate for for astronaut selection. Some of the tests that we did were. Um, the same things that Tim Peake did in his selection for ESA, so I know some of them are exactly replicas of, of real tests. And um, I think certainly the characteristics they were looking for, even if the way in which they were doing that selection wasn't identical, the characteristics they were looking for were the same thing. What was the most nerve-wracking part of that pro- process for you? Um, nerve-wracking is an interesting one. Actually, so... Okay, I'm going to answer nerve-wracking first. Nerve-wracking is interesting because actually um, what I do is lecture. I'm a lecturer and professor at university. And one of our challenges was to give a public lecture. And, you know, this is meant to be my skill, right? This is meant to be something that I'm good at because it's what I do every day. And that made me quite nervous because actually the other things, drowning underwater or, I don't know, spinning around in a centrifuge, is not something that I'm expected to be good at. I hope I'm good at it. I'm going to try as hard as I can. I really felt the expectation level was highest for the thing in which I had been trained. And so that is what made me nervous. But the real tough aspect to it is the uncertainty and the unknown. So, you know, walking into a room and suddenly being told, okay, you have to learn how to take your own blood. I'm squeamish, ah, you know, I've never done this before. Adapting to a new environment, not knowing what's coming, having so many tests, tests every day, never knowing when one's coming, never getting feedback. It's over weeks that gets really tiring, and I think that cumulative effect actually is what wore us down in the end. Have you been telling Tim Peake that you're after his job now? After <laughs> I have spoken to yeah. Tim Peake. I haven't told him to move aside. <laughs> but uh, what I really like about Tim is he's such a such a kind of normal. Like, going to sound corny and a bad pun but he is really down to earth like he's just the kind of guy you'd meet in the pub for a chat he's not you know full of fame and fortune and I really like that about him so as a planetary scientist is there a mission that you're looking forward to that's coming up oh yeah the mission I work on which I was talking about today is Bepi Colombo uh, the mission to Mercury mm. uh, a joint mission between the European Space Agency and the Japanese Space Agency the European spacecraft each, each of those agencies built a spacecraft and on board the European one is our instrument um, called NIX uh, it's one of 11 instruments, so it's our baby. We built it, designed it, you know, and it's and it's on its way to Mercury now. The goal of our instrument is to understand what Mercury is made of. So we're going to get really high-resolution data on the composition of Mercury, and that's one of the really fundamental questions about the planet that we don't know the answer to right now. So my job right now is I'm interested in looking... So it's, it's on its journey, it's on the way there. It's going to fly past some planets on route, so we'll get some data back from Venus and from the Mercury flybys. But I need, we need to think about, you know, this is our science question. How much data do we need? Where do we point? Who else do we need to involve? Which other instruments? So it's all about kind of science operations planning at the moment for us, and that's super exciting. Is that a kind of knowledge that you try and impart on the audience that you give your talks to today? I think 
a sense of so it's launched already it has launched a year ago there's six more years until it gets there yeah. it's nice to at least kind of be explained to people that I'm not just sitting back twiddling my thumbs hanging out waiting seven years you know there's a lot of work that goes into every aspect of this it took us 19 years to design and build and test and deliver our instrument alone from first concept to delivery of instruments 2001 is when we first started thinking about 2000 so it's been a long time in the coming but actually, yes, in the seven years, there's a huge amount of work and a team of people are working on before it even arrives there. And when it gets there, it'll operate for a year, maybe a little bit more or so. Will um, Beppe Colombo be given the same kind of personality like Rosetta and Philae did? They gave them that cutesy kind we have, of... We have characters. We have cartoon characters uh, for, for Beppe Colombo, for the two spacecraft that comprise Beppe Colombo. Yep. So I think that's what really endeared that particular mission, Rosetta, to people's Hearts was this little cartoon character that's having an adventure, and we, you know, we all follow along, and it really got people at all ages involved and engaged. And they're, they're doing exactly the same thing for for our mission too, which I was really pleased to see. Awesome. <laughs> Look out for you know blow up Buffy Colombo or you know cuddly toy Buffy Colombo. <laughs> There's a really big emphasis in that session, all, all of the speakers, on cooperation, on Europe-wide cooperation, on obviously the work of ESA. Sorry. Um, are there any? Do you have any worries about how that cooperation might be affected by leaving the European Union and British science generally? I do. Um, so the first thing to say is that we're not leaving ESA, thankfully. So the, the space people that we're involved in now, we will continue to be involved in. We're still a member of the European Space Agency. Um, the thing about the science funding and, and the European funding is that we certainly, at my university and many universities, we are beneficiaries of that funding stream, and so uh, some of our funding has come through the EU funding supply. And it's not clear what will happen. The government have promised to continue to pay for things that have already been awarded to us, but what about future grants and future opportunities? It looks like those will be limited. And already we noticed that our European colleagues, if they're thinking about writing grants, may not invite us to be a part of them. But the uncertainty is, is one of the things that's hurting us, uh, as well as the reality of what may be coming. Actually, the uncertainty has been hurting us for a couple of years now. Um, and so uh, the big missions are safe, but some of the smaller grants are at risk, certainly. Can I just say one more thing? The future's really bright. <laughs> it sounded really like doom yeah. and gloom. And it's I thought I'd bring the mood down. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that word. But the future's actually right. really bright for our industry. Yeah. Think about what's happening at the moment. You know, we're building spaceports. We are building a space park in Leicester. You know, our industry is really booming and it's growing. And, and the upstream stuff is growing for the downstream stuff too, taking data and using it to solve societal problems, um, using our observation data to tackle climate change, um, to tackle modern slavery, to tackle you know issues of piracy and migration and wildfires. All of this stuff is really exciting and moving forward really fast. So while the European Union funding may be in doubt, it doesn't mean that our program isn't moving forward and so going to be incredibly successful over the next few years. Please don't make it sound like I think yeah, the world is over because it's not. Yeah. Cool. Great. Thank yeah, you. Thanks yeah. very much. Thank you for your time. <laughs> very energetic. <laughs> very much so. Those are the good ones, though. Yeah. It's, it's good to see that Beppe Colombo is going to have the same kind of effect that uh, Rosetta is. So be prepared to be emotional, just like we was with Ro Rosetta. <laughs> yeah, and Cassini. Yep, but um, it is quite an exciting time in, in the UK at the moment for the space industry. But like she said, it's also worrying because we don't know what's around the corner. Um, the mission itself, Beppe Colombo, is, is a really exciting mission. The second interview that I conducted was with Shahzad Timon, and she is um, a European Space Agency aerospace and robotics engineer. 
How long have you been working in robotics? It's been about four years, maybe, I would say. Yeah, I started as an intern in 2015 uh, with ESA. So at the start, you really kind of get to learn about all the stuff that are, that's going on. And at some point, you really find your interest and you know, your passion within, uh, within your passion, actually. Yeah. And then that led me to choosing for, uh, you know, to, to work on um, human robotics, really. So the interaction between humans and uh, robotic systems. So saying that you, you came in as an intern, yeah. uh, what would you say to people to inspire them to, to get into that kind of field? The number one um, remark that I get from people when I ask them, like, hey, are you interested in going into the space field? They say, oh, I wouldn't get in anyways. It'll be too difficult, and I'm not that smart. And I always tell them, hey, seriously, if, if, if we all got in, you can get in. That's just, you know, at some point you just work hard for something. If your interest lies there, you just work hard for it. Meaning, do well in school, see the bigger picture whenever you have a, you know, exam week coming up, see the bigger picture, know that, you know what, I'm doing this in order to one day do this, you know, to, to work at an agency, for example, or work in spaceflight. Um, and then, I mean, I think for me, that was really my inspiration and that kept me going and uh, I'm really, really happy I did. So honestly, for everyone, just do your best and uh, there's literally no uh, no limit to where you can, uh, can get. Now, you were talking in your talk about um, the remote uh, robotics uh, have been going on between the, the ISS and, and the ground. Um, where do you see that going? Because I, I kind of see like medical possibilities there because it's very limited to what you can do in space medically-wise. But if you've got somebody on the ground who could do procedures remotely, do you, do you see things like that happening? Uh, you mean medically, as in that, that for a long duration of time, having people up there? I mean... Yeah, you know, actually, I need to comment on that first. The ISS is really this research platform that we have, right? Of course, as we all know. But that already is something that we're learning so much from to also solve some of the issues that we have with long-term uh, spaceflight. We've had the, the year in space by NASA, right? And um, But, yes, you can have a human on the ground and kind of controlling a rover. And... Yes, it works, but there is a time delay, and we need to take it into account. And there are situations in which the time delay may or may not, you know, uh, work or may not work. It could really be the difference uh, for your success for that mission. Um, so for that, it's extremely useful to have humans there. I mean, I'll just give you an example. If you have a human on the surface of the moon, right, you'll have a zero-second delay could have because you're just right there right there's no distance so depending on your communication system and how that works right let's say zero but from earth to the moon so depending where you are right you're on the far side it's of course longer but we're talking seconds of delay three to five seconds of delay and yes of course if you want to drive a bit and everything is clear you're good right if i press stop now or and it stops three seconds later we're, we're not in, you know in trouble but what if you're, you've just found this extremely, extremely useful or, or valuable piece of sample and you want to work on this and actually very carefully collect it, right? If, because if you're working, for example, on uh, the, the shadow, uh, in, the, in the permanent the shadowed areas, you have these ice particles, right? And you want to collect them. You can't just drill into them because it'll just, you know, the, all the heat, you know, the, the water, boom, it's gone. Yeah. 
right? But um, you would need to be really careful with that. So if you would have this delay eliminated, uh, you could work really precisely. And also, if you have humans on site, also, um, there is just a different way of looking at the situation and how you would operate that could really affect it a lot. So that's, that is something that's being worked on at the moment, is to try and get rid of that delay? Um, it's not per se getting rid of that delay. I mean, there is some, there's simply delays that are there, right? If we're talking IS test to ground, it's also a second, yeah. uh, which is doable, right? I've done some research on this delay and how it affects, of course, if you're like one, you know, half a second, one second, you're, you're I mean, you, you do notice it in your system, especially for specific, you know, tasks. But it's doable. But if we're talking three, three and a half seconds delay, uh, it gets tough, right? Your, you know, your systems can get, you know, uh, all uh, messed up. Or I mean, but this is talking on experiment level, of course. Uh, in, in space, we would make sure that you know everything is trained properly and designed properly. But um, understanding operations in delay—that's absolutely a topic that the agency is working on quite hard. So. Uh, uh, and yeah, I'm really hopeful that we're actually learning about this more and more for the future. And, and what do you feel about the um, robotic humanoids like uh, Robonauts and things like that? Do, do you think that will, they will come into their own at some point? As in a robot, so, so you mean a robot designed to be in the form of a human? Yeah. Really? I think it's in the end, operationally, you have to look what needs to happen, right? Do we need to open a hatch? If the answer is yes, does it matter if the one opening it looks like a human? No. Right. So is it necessary? No. So literally, for every single of these steps, you would really have to consider what is the purpose of this? It really depends on what needs to happen. Okay. So as long as it's functional, that's all that really matters. Functional. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. It can be ugly, it can be, you know, whatever, as light as possible, as small as possible, whatever, but um, it needs to be functional, yeah, it needs to be working. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking with Thank us. you so much. Thank and, you. Um, yeah, your talk was amazing. So. Thank you very much. Thank very you. kind. Thank you. As long as it's functional, it doesn't matter what it looks like. <laughs> Pretty much. And also, with that delay, you really don't want to be playing video games. Ha! No, no, that's... <laughs> no. I mean, even even satellites in geosynchronous orbit, you know, any any of those that you might use for any kind of Internet communications, yeah, you're not playing games on those. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're talking a full second or whatever for signals to go up and back, yeah, you're not playing games on that one either. <laughs> but, yeah, she was really interesting, and, and her talk uh, that she on, on stage... Uh, she was talking about some of the things that ESA have done in the past where you've got a rover on Earth and one of the astronauts on board the ISS were actually taking rods out of a board and putting them into another part of the board and it's got force feedback on there and all that kind of stuff and it's, it's mm-hmm. quite interesting. So the next interview I was really looking forward to and I had I'd contacted this person beforehand and it's Sue Nelson. And Sue Nelson is a journalist. She's an author, podcaster, part of a team that I listen to um, called Space Boffins, which is an awesome podcast. And I, I know we're, we're a podcast ourselves, but it's a really good podcast to listen to. Now, Sue, 
you've, you've had a, an amazing career through the different things you do and, and most people that probably listen to my podcast know you from it's your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, how long have you been doing that now? Since 2011, so eight years. I think we started the, the first UK Space Agency Space Conference, which I think was 2011. Yeah, so the, yeah, so, eight. so we're coming up to next year will be our ninth year. Wow. Now, you don't just do that, do you? Because I know you do a lot of um, documentaries for the BBC. And um, a couple of the ones that I've listened to are very specific because it's promoting something that a lot of people out there probably didn't know existed with the, like the, the Mercury 13 and things like that. And it's great to um, listen to because it gives inspiration to young women out there that want to get into the field. What was that like actually researching into that programme? Well, I always think research for me is one of the, my favourite things uh, with any documentary or program I love the sort of intellectual rooting around um, I love speaking to people which is a good quality well, thankfully yeah. <laughs> if you're a journalist and you're like oh making a podcast it's a good quality to have is that you actually like and I love a good chinwag and often you find really interesting stories or angles of people through talking to other people now that sounds obvious but you'd be amazed now maybe with email how many people don't actually want to talk to other people so yeah the research for me is, is is the best part um, and then the actual making of the programme because that's always the joy of doing journalism is that you often get backstage looks at um, whether it's I often go into clean rooms at ESA or NASA or Airbus to see the Mars rover is that you're getting quite a privileged access uh, particularly with, with, with space and then there's also the people you're getting to meet people who, who probably you know would cross the road to avoid you in, a, in, a, in a, any other circumstances but they can't because they have to and so it's great that way I, I, do, I really enjoy um, the, the job for that reason and, and through doing those documentaries you came, you came across well she's a force of nature really Wally Funk <laughs> oh I could barely keep up with her yeah <laughs> But it's just unbelievable to think, I mean, at her age, she's still flying. And I know. Um, quite often, when she was here um, only, you know, about a month or so ago in the UK for the paperback release, and I was with her for about eight days. By the end of those eight days, I was almost on my knees. I wasn't the one who'd flown. 3,000 miles as she was yes. and sometimes I had to say Wally I need to sit down come and do it and she's 80 now yeah. she has got a tremendous energy and drive and you know I thought well I think well I'm no slacker you know I've got lots of energy but nothing on a par with her but I think you know one of the reasons she's got this drive is because she now you know from passing the astronaut physical tests in 1961 to now being 2019 she's got her ticket with Virgin Galactic she's 80 years old she's on a deadline yeah. to put it bluntly 
she's on a deadline and so that's probably made her more determined and frenzied and wherever we would go like we went to the headquarters of um, Virgin Galactic where we both gave a talk to some of the other they call them future astronauts who've paid money to go up into space with Virgin Galactic and as soon as we'd done the talk and chatted to some of the other people um, many of whom we'd met at Spaceport America in New Mexico when I'd gone there as her guest she was hounding the Virgin Galactic staff you know like so when am I going to go up okay what am I going to do you know so she doesn't give up um, so yeah you try stop her I couldn't <laughs> now uh, a couple of years back you took part in that um, it was kind of like an advertising oh, really, links. the links the links thing. space challenge or yeah. something like that yeah I got to the final 250 um, and it was all partly you know you had to get internet votes so it's a you know you had to use social media to your advantage to just get voted and then you had to do a sort of physical it was like a bouncy castle um, apparently though this bouncy castle Oh, obstacle course is used by the army so it's actually much tougher than I looked at it and thought oh well that's easy oh, oh it was it, I didn't pass I didn't I didn't get into the top 10 <laughs> I think I was one of the oldest people taking part but just by getting to within 250 of the prize was a commercial space flight which is why I, I entered A for that reason but primarily um, I was a late entrant and the reason I was a late entrant is because Kate um, Arcliffe Gray yep. uh, had tweeted and contacted me and said, have you seen this? There are hardly any women in the getting to the shortlist. And I said, well, that's not right. So I entered partly to get another, hopefully another woman into the final, which would be me, but also to get other women and to publicise it and to use Twitter yeah, and Facebook. And it, and it worked because it wasn't just me. It was Kate and it was other women. And, and that massive sort of um, recruitment drive bumped up really quite considerably the number of women who got into the final 250 and you know okay final 250 it was fun it was good it, it promoted women who wanted to be interested I'd interviewed um, Tim Peake shortly afterwards and he'd seen it he said oh I saw you did that and he asked me what the odds were and I said well you know one in 250 and he said well they were much better than mine his odds were one in 8,000 wow so that's pretty you know, Exactly. <laughs> so if you're not in it, you can't win it. <laughs> so going back to your time with um, Space Buffins, yeah. what moment through the podcast would you say has stuck out as one of your favourite moments? Um, that's hard to, to say because the beauty of the podcast is that we've met you know, and interviewed everyone from Apollo astronauts to Soyuz astronauts to cosmonauts to a load of European astronauts, space scientists from Michigan 
sessions. And it's really then hard to say, well, who did I enjoy meeting the most? Because everybody has something slightly different about it. I will say, though, this is not necessarily my best moment, but it's probably one of the highlights. Last year, um, we went to STEC, the European Space Agency technical facility where a lot of spacecraft are given their final tests before they go into space. And we did it live uh, on a Space Rocks stage in a car park, <laughs> in Anissa car park. Okay. And do you know what? It was really good fun. The people we interviewed were were extremely competent and amazing people, but the atmosphere was was great because you've got thousands of people who go there for those open days who get incredible access and so they're all so happy to be there so yeah and um, I think we interviewed um, Paolo Nespoli who is a, a, a very funny man the astronaut I've he's, heard yeah. yeah he's he's um, I think one of the advantages of ESA astronauts over NASA astronauts is that NASA astronauts are media trained to within an inch of their lives and they're always on message. The ESA astronauts have opinions and, and they don't care, though, even if it's not necessarily the party line, which as a journalist is why I really like them because they're prepared they to be indiscreet. They yes, they say what they think and they're indiscreet. <laughs> and yeah, and he's, he's, he's good value. He's good value. Yeah, so, your book, um, would you like to just, just plug it a little bit? Oh, that's very kind of you. Well, it's called Wally Funk's Race for Space, and it's a it's about Wally Funk, the history of the Mercury 13, but also it's a very personal um, book about my relationship with this funny, eccentric, difficult... <laughs> so crazy <laughs> never go in a car with her because she'll almost kill you <laughs> um, and it's also a mix of a history of women in space as well so it's a, it's a sort of almost personal love letter to Wally Funk but um, it's for people who are interested in space history and want to know about a piece of space history that so many people don't know about and about those early days of um, women in the in the space industry and this is the hopefully the the book for you and and she will make you laugh that's the other thing it's it's space it's women and it's bloody funny <laughs> <laughs> so it's been an absolute pleasure talking with oh you. no i knew thank you very much for taking an interest <laughs> and um i'll hope to hear you again soon on the podcast yeah well you, you know you you tweet ours and we'll tweet yours absolutely it's really nice to meet other people who are interested in space and doing well and we you know support every one of them yeah. thank you yeah, she's she's good fun. Sounds like it. And um, I wanted to make her uh, an honorary crew member, but what's the but? I forgot to take take some patches with me. You <laughs> naughty person! <laughs> so she said, "Well, send me an email, and um, I'll send you details of where to send the patch." Anyway, um, I got the email back from her. And their offices are in Letchworth. Oh, so you could basically walk over to them. Uh, which is basically what I did on Thursday. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, I forgot that the UK Space Conference is on this week. 
Uh, oh, so you walked over and she wasn't and there. And she wasn't there, but I left the patch and a, a calling card at, at reception. So, And then I sent her another message to say that's what I've done, so she should get it. So she knows what to do with, um, you know, sending a photograph back. But um, she did say, you know, I pop over there sometime when they're not busy because they're, they're doing a lot of travelling with different things at the moment. But, yeah, I'll possibly go over there for a coffee and who knows. Cool. Yeah, so that'll be good. I'll get over there someday. <laughs> Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of TGP Nominal and its infinite mission to explore space, science, and technology news. To explore the world of sci-fi, comic-cons, and gaming. To boldly go where no podcast has gone before. The next interview was with a guy called Paul Franklin. Now, Paul Franklin is an Oscar and BAFTA-winning visual effects supervisor from Hollywood movies. My job is I am what's called a visual effects supervisor. Uh, I also work as the creative director of a big visual effects studio called DNEG, which is based here in London, has its headquarters, and we have studios all around the world, in Canada, in Los Angeles, and India. And I design digital visual effects for Hollywood movies. So I work with the filmmakers, with the directors, the writers, the producers, to work out where we can use digital visual effects techniques to help tell the story and bring the filmmaker's vision to the screen. Now that can be problematic because when you've got the, the actual physical science behind things and then the, the, the fiction, um, trying to get those to merge must be quite difficult. Well, yes, there's, you know, the, there's always a tension between the, the requirements of the story and the requirement to be accurate and uh, to represent things as they really are. And, you know, I think we can all think of sci-fi movies where uh, the story has taken precedence over the, over the science because that's and that that's understandable because ultimately at the end of the day uh, a Hollywood film is an entertainment it's about getting people excited and giving them a, you know, an enjoyable experience when they go into a cinema and they don't want to be lectured they don't want to be felt that they're sat in the classroom being taught about uh, uh, you know, basics of science and space and what have you. and I think sometimes filmmakers might err too much on the side of the story or fear that the science will obscure it and I've been really lucky though to work with filmmakers who are, you know, really want to embrace the science aspect of things because they see that it's going to make their story bigger, stronger and better and more amazing because at the end of the day the most extraordinary things that we can put on screen are you know, the frankly outrageous things that the universe holds within itself but we don't really actually need to go and make stuff up it's already out there we just need to find it and figure out how to represent it on screen exactly I mean a few years ago uh, say 20 years ago what was then considered to be science fiction is now become a reality in, in a lot of things so it's only a matter of time before the two have blurred lines really I mean I think science fiction has you know, long predicted the future uh, whether it's uh, 
advances in science and technology, you know, the famous one is in Star Trek, the little communicators are the mobile phones that we have today. And uh, I can even think of a story, a short story written over 100 years ago called The Machine Stopped, which basically predicts the internet uh, before people even had you know, decent tele telephones connecting together, let alone the kind of things we have today. So science, is, science fiction is, is prophetic in that way, but it also, it also predicts the way that you know, society can change and can, where it can go. But also it gets certain things wrong. You know, I grew up in the 1980s uh, against the background of the Cold War. I can't think of a single science fiction writer who predicted the end of the Cold War in 1989. <laughs> Not one. Completely solved by David Hasselhoff, apparently. There you go. Yes, indeed. It's a uh, searching for freedom song. And then sometimes also science fiction is a self-fulfilling prophecy. I, um, a long time ago I met the designer Sid Mead who famously designed a lot of flavour He's a very famous concept artist. And I asked him about his work in product design because he then got hired by companies like Sony to design hi-fi systems and things like that. And, and he said, well, it was a bit strange because it became a self-fulfilling prophecy because what they asked me to do was what I'd already done in Blade Runner. And so they said, well, just give us what you did in Blade Runner. You know, that's And so Blade Runner became a self-fulfilling prophecy of what the future would look like because everyone was imitating it. So that was kind of an interesting thing. So where do you think that sci-fi can go now with, with the technology that we've got for creating the effects? Is there a point where we can't get any further, or is... Well, I think, you know, even today, I think most images, pretty much any image you can think of, you can now create, and you can bring it to the screen with a degree of plausibility, uh, uh, you know, make it robust and resilient in a way that we couldn't have done a few years ago. And it's fair to say that modern visual effects elevated what had previously been B-movies uh, before Star Wars, science fiction films were always B-movies, they weren't considered to be serious uh, films, but today you can make a film like Interstellar and it will hold up and people will look at it and take it seriously because it feels plausible, it feels real. So for me the question is not so much about like what are the things that we can create in the future, but why are you doing it? Why does it earn its place in the story? So everything that we did in Interstellar was in the service of the narrative, the story. If the visual effects are just there purely for their own sake, then it becomes more like a, a roller coaster ride, like a theme park thing. And there's a place for that, but it's not necessarily in that kind of cinema. So I, don't, I honestly don't think there are any limits at all. I mean, right now, there's real advances in the way that we create believable creatures on the screen. You think of a film like The Lion King recently, where the lions look real, though they're no longer cartoons. So, uh, and then on a film like Interstellar, we created uh, images uh, based on Einstein's physics, you know, using the theory of general relativity to drive the imagery. So I just don't think there's anything we can't do. It's all about why you do Well, Paul, it's been fantastic talking with you. Thank you very much. I very much enjoyed being here today. Thank you. I need to talk to him and get him on my show. I love looking at VFX clips for movies. That is so much fun to see how they composite it and put it all together. The main films that he worked on, obviously he mentioned Interstellar a few yeah. times. Uh, Inception oh, yeah. was one of his. That uh, movie was so good. Um, the Chris Nolan Batman movies. Yep. Um, Harry Potter, and he was also on The First Man as well. Yeah, I, I need to interview him for my <laughs> podcast. 
<laughs> talk about VFX and stuff like that. He uh, on his actual stage show, he was talking about black holes, and um, obviously in, in Interstellar they had a black hole, and it's the fact that if you talk about black holes and you go back in time to some of the older movies like for example he brought up the black hole and he said that's actually Mm -hmm. one of his favorite movies and i was like oh my god i love the black hole (laughs) but really yeah uh okay the movie was absolutely groundbreaking when it comes to special effect that uh you know fragment that rolls down that trench is yeah one of the best one of the best things of science fiction special effects ever it still holds up mm-hmm. but really the movie itself was yeah but I, it's for eh? that reason for that reason um and 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 the, the robot characters were just amazing oh, oh bob and and, and vincent i, I oh, love yeah. those two yeah so i was talking about you know the, the black hole was a big hole in space and it's not because it's actually yeah. a dome there's a dome on a black hole and the thing is he said the problem with space is it's black and the problem with the black hole it's black and you can't see them very well they were given this this data and once they had to create the software to make these things happen and and he was comparing that with star wars because back in those days they had to make the visual effects because Mm -hmm. the technology wasn't there um, and that's exactly what he was doing, creating this software that could read the data that was coming from actual space agency data, which is quite amazing stuff. Yeah. Kudos to him for that. I didn't have a lot of time with him because uh, when he started talking about Sid Mead and I wanted to talk about things like Tron and stuff like that, and uh, I was being given the wind-it-up kind of things from the PR people, and mm. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Well, see, now you have a contact with mm-hmm. him. We need to just we need to get him on the show and just chat with him. Yeah. So the next person I spoke to was a guy called Chris Lintot. He is the guy who is one of the leading presenters of the BBC show The Sky at Night, which is probably the longest-running astronomy show in the world. Never heard of it. It's been going since probably 1950. Something or other. Wow. For people that are not familiar with you, which I don't think anybody who listens to the podcast doesn't know what you do, tell people about your career. Well, I'm a distracted astronomer, is usually how I put it. I started off as an astrochemist, thinking about the chemistry of star formation. I got distracted thinking about galaxies. I spent a lot of time wondering how black holes grow. Uh, and I run a project called the Zooniverse, which invites millions of people to come and help through sorting through scientific data. So that can be discovering planets. We've just uh, announced a new planet last night, actually. But it can also be counting penguins or, or transcribing ancient papyri or looking at cell structure or, or pretty much anything. So you've been with the, the Sky at Night how long now? Oh, yes, I didn't even mention the Sky at Night. Yes, I, dab- I dabble for the BBC. So I first appeared on Sky at Night uh, 19 years ago when I was a student uh, and I've been working for the programme uh, since 2003 first as a researcher and then as a reporter so I've had this amazing chance to do 
all sorts of things, but also something no one these days gets to be bad on television. You get one go and you fail, and I got to grow up, and because the Scott Knight is incredibly cheap, and I was incredibly cheap, I still am, uh, I got to practice, and I, I got to go to things like the Huygens landing on Titan and, and roam around as a, a fairly green reporter uh, and, and enjoy being there for those things. I, I remember seeing your reaction when... Uh, Rosetta. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was just amazing. Just to, You could see the excitement in it. Uh, Rosetta was such a good story because it was this amazing mission, this exploration of a comet, a place that we hadn't been in, which I think Matt Taylor's around somewhere, but, so don't let him hear me say this, but I think it turned out more interesting than people thought it was going to be <laughs> as well, uh, with that strange duck shape of the comet nucleus. Uh, and we'd been with them a while. We did a preview program, we did the arrival, uh, we did the landing and, and then the ending. So, so I feel that we sort of we weren't part of the team but we, we, we were riding along that mission I hope the Sky Night viewers thought, thought that too we're actually I can tell you I don't think this is public yet but we're going back next week we're going to go and film the final Rosetta Science Conference so we're wow. going to finish the story by going back and hearing from them about everything they've discovered in the data uh, I think we forget that when the mission ends Rosetta ended Cassini plummeted into Saturn we forget that actually for scientists the work's just starting and Rosetta will be producing data for years to come but we're going to get a first look at, uh, at what they found and I'm really really excited about that Brilliant. so what was it like learning really from NASA from Sir Patrick well first thing to say is that um, Patrick was off camera exactly as he was on camera so people who think that they felt they knew him really did uh, he was an incredibly generous man generous with his time and his expertise who suffered no fools gladly at all so you, you had to be on, on your toes but but he liked people, liked astronomers, he liked people who cared about stuff. And um, I think what I learned from Patrick was really that you could talk to everyone at once. Patrick had this great gift of starting a program, say, on Mars, by saying, we're going to talk about Mars. Mars is a planet. It goes around the sun. It's a bit further out than Earth. You know, the stuff that five-year-olds know, but it's important to get that in. And then equally clearly, three minutes later, we're going in the most exciting thing is the discovery of perchlorate in the surface. Now, perchlorate is a chemical, you know, and, and that would be cutting-edge news. And I think Patrick was one of the few people who realised you could do both of those things. And I, that, I hope we still try to do that now. Excellent. And it's really good because the, I think the chemistry that between you and uh, Maggie Deering Pocock, she's worked off you really well, the, the two of you. Yeah, really I think well. we, we have a lot of fun. Of course, she has different expertise. She's an engineer. And so I remember there was a late night in the bar at one of the Rosetta programs after Philae landed on the surface and we were trying to work out what could have happened and I know a bit about the comet and I'd been reporting on the team but Maggie was there constructing a model out of cocktail skewers and trying to work out what was going on. Um, so yeah, no, it's great fun. And I think um, yeah, the Sky at Night should always have one very loud, very enthusiastic, fast-talking presenter and, and Maggie, I think, has stepped into those shoes particularly well. Well, Chris, it's been absolutely wonderful talking with you. My pleasure. And I look forward to hearing you later on. Sure. Well, enjoy it, and um, we'll talk soon. Thanks. Thanks. So he was talking about a, a character there, uh, Sir Patrick Moore, who was the original host of The Sky at Night for many, many years, and um, he died uh, not too long ago, and he was very missed on that show. He was a good friend of Brian May's 
a lot of people were inspired to buy telescopes because of this guy. He he wasn't actually a, a proper astronomer when the show started. He was just an amateur. But they just wanted someone who was enthusiastic on the show. And he went from there and became one of the UK's most well-known astronomers and in fact if you go to the national space center in leicester their planetarium is actually named after him oh nice when i was talking to chris uh, he had to shoot off there because he was due to go on stage Uh, and he went out of the door and came back in again and he basically said this i failed to bring a card i've got a book out in a couple of months if you'd like to do a catch-up about that okay um i've got you on twitter Twitter, Twitter, yeah all right so yeah he wants to do a follow-up interview cool when his book comes out it comes out later this month uh, and I got in touch with him on Twitter and he gave me the email address of his assistant so that we can arrange a date for that to happen. Oh, sweet. So that was pretty cool. So the next interview is a guy that you probably know his name, uh, a guy called Jason Isaacs. He was uh, Lucius Malfoy in Harry Potter and he's been in lots of other things and he's also Captain Gabriel Lorca in... Star Trek Discovery, which I know you you mm-hmm. haven't watched, but um, yeah, he's a great guy to talk to, and uh, I didn't have very long with him, but this is this is what I got when uh, I spoke to him. How you doing, sir? Uh, pretty good. Had a fantastic and interesting first session. I look forward to the next. My mind is blown every time anyone around me opens their mouth. This is not the first time that you've had dealings with Space Rocks. No, no. I did it at the Latitude Festival. I also went to ESA's Open Day in Europe, took my daughters to meet some incredibly inspiring young women. The, the Mark who asked me to go, I said, could you line up young women who are inspiring for my daughters? And he said I could do it all day, every day for a month. And sure enough, they met some phenomenal people. There are some uh, amazing female scientists out there. And uh, that's one thing we try and do on the podcast is spread the word. Um, I mean, the point of... Uh, an event like today it's not to advertise or show off all these fabulous people on stage it's just to make the people who are in the audience realise how attainable it is it's to pull the curtain back and go you know, for every astronaut, for every Tim Peake you see on telly there's a thousand people pursuing their passion loving their life and doing something that's actually making a difference and doing something useful uh, and on fire with curiosity and uh, that's an important message to send out there that it's not, you know, it's entirely attainable. You just have to do your homework and knock on the door and ask. Talking about your your film career, obviously the ones that. What would you everyone... have my film career for? It's a science podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the people out there know you for, for two things. Oh, well, the main... well, that's not true for a start. Well, they do. Uh... No, you do because you're a science geek. Yeah. People who watch true. telly and films <laughs> and see me do hundreds of crappy things. But. So you've got the two types of fans. You've got your Harry Potter fans. You've got your Star Trek fans. Star Wars. I mean, Star Wars uh, Rebels as well. Yes, yes, you are. Yes, indeed. And now there's the Dark Crystal fans, which I didn't realise was a huge club that had been waiting in the shadows for decades. Just a cult following with that, though. But um, who would you say fan-wise are the craziest? None of them are crazy. They're all phenomenal. And it's it's different because Harry Potter's generational. You know, some of the Star Trek fans have been passionate about it for 40 years or 50 years Uh, but none of them are crazy because uh, I'm with them I mean I'm a fan of both those things I was a huge Star Trek geek when I was a kid uh, you know, I was raised on, on Shatner and Nimoy being just different, different. you know, the yin and yang of what it is to be a man. Uh, and when we were making Harry Potter, one of the reasons the films are so successful, I think, is we were all 
in love with the books and the stories and the characters and recognised that there was something special happened. Certainly by the time the second film came out, you knew that the world was desperate to see them because they'd already read the four books, which were the best-selling books in the world. So, uh, no, none of them are crazy. I will, I'm entirely with them. I stand side by side with them. What I wouldn't do is tattoo my body head to put with some of them do. But that's the, that's the only thing that separates me and them. So one last question. What did it feel like for you when you were given your own command? Oh, to be on the ship was outrageous. Well, they normally watch it and I didn't sit in the chair for the first three episodes. I couldn't bear. I just I needed to be on my feet and, and, and differentiate myself in my head from all those other magnificent captains. But then when it felt like my ship... I swaggered my way into uh, in the chair, and, and uh, it's pretty good to be in charge of a starship. Everyone should try it once. Brilliant. Well, Jason, it's been an absolute pleasure talking uh, with you. Thanks. It's a privilege to be here. It really is. Wow, that's cool. I wish that one could last longer. He sounds like a trip to interview. He was good fun when he was on stage as well. He was telling jokes. When the kids had watched what was going on on stage he went into the audience and he was asking kids questions to see whether they were actually listening to what was going on on stage but he was a good good laugh at least he identifies with one of us that's very cool the next interview is one that i've been waiting a year to get (laughs) and unfortunately i didn't have time alone with him i had to do one of those round robin Interviews, but this was Tim Peake. I mean, Space Rocks is, is going from strength to strength, and I think whenever you bring like minded people together, whether their interest is in, in space or music or culture or art, then it always makes for a fantastic event. Mm. Uh, so I managed to catch up with your, your talk just before. Uh, you, do you think you managed to inspire some uh, astronauts in the audience? I, I hope so. I mean, it's their future. Uh, uh, what I was trying to do is just say how exciting it is. You know, um, we, for 20 years we've been going to low Earth orbit on a space station, and we've been talking a lot of about that and that's exciting in terms of the science what we're doing but really this is the next step I mean it is coming along in the next five years we are building another um, orbital outpost around the moon um, in order to service lunar surface operations I mean how exciting is that going back to the moon with a vision that only 10 years beyond that will be going off to the red planet mm. is going to the moon something you, you would be motivated to uh, absolutely is it something yeah, you're yeah. working towards I, I don't think there's any astro- uh, excuse me I don't think there's any astro- who would uh, say no to a <laughs> Tim, what do you think the likelihood is of getting back to the moon by 2024? So I think it's a huge challenge in order to put you know, boots on the surface of the moon. It, it's possible. Uh, we need everything to go to plan between now and 2024 in order for that to be achieved. But this is a strong international partnership. It's already been forged over 20 years. As I said, it's the International Space Age Partnership. And in addition to that, it's now using commercial partnership. So where, for example, we've had problems, uh, for example, the SLS launcher has been delayed, well, we've now got commercial launchers that can launch those first modules that are going to build the gateway. Um, And SLS can uh, launch the Orion spacecraft. So this commercial collaboration is very important in providing, for example, the human lander system. Um, so it is achievable, but it is very ambitious. Tim, this is slightly off topic on, on that kind of thing. Uh, well, going back to your time when you were on the space station and you made that wrong number, um, have you actually spoken to those 
people since? Or yeah, no, I have, I have. In fact, I think it was the one show that actually put us in touch. Uh, they surprised me when I was on the one show, and they actually called up uh, Margaret and uh, we had a chat. So I was able to apologise to her. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, on the, on the same kind of topic, when when you uh, first arrived at the space station, uh, there was a little bit of a rumble of uh, some kind of practical jokes that you and Tim Copper were kind of playing on each other. Is there anything you can elaborate on that? Uh, I'm not sure when we first, but we, we, we've, we've always planned practical jokes on each other. I mean, it's one of the great things is, you know, to keep your motivation up, keep your morale up, is to play jokes <laughs> on each other as crewmates. So um, I remember playing a joke on Tim. Uh, we had this payload in a cargo vehicle that's actually an incendiary device, and it was designed for when, we, when it undocks and it burns up in the atmosphere just before burning up. It was going to set fire to the vehicle so that we could study how fire propagates on a, on a vehicle. Yeah. Uh, and I designed this uh, pull to ignite tab and, and kind of placed it in this incendiary device so that when he was unpacking that he would see this big old pull to ignite uh, tab coming out of there, which he, he wasn't very impressed with. You can't really run and hide on the space station, can no. you, if you get caught? Sorry, guys, we're going to have to wrap there. OK. OK. Thanks very much, guys. <laughs> you were nerding out. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, the wrong number thing was quite funny. Uh, he was supposed to be calling home to his parents and he got one of the digits wrong and obviously he started calling a phone number and the answer phone kicked in and he realised at that point it wasn't his mum and dad's house that he'd called. So he thought it'd be rude not to leave a message. Oh, man. And he left a message on this lady's answer phone saying, Hi, this is Tim Peake. I'm calling for you from the International Space Station. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which probably just got deleted as a joke. Yeah. Until, as I said, this television program called The One Show actually got hold of this lady and um, did a video link with her. And, uh, yeah, he, he apologised. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it happens. <laughs> hey, anybody can accidentally press the wrong button. This is true. This is true. The reason why I asked the the practical joke question was that uh, when they boarded the ISS, um, they could talk to some of their family. That you know, they they do that thing where they patch them in from mission control because the families are there. And uh, his dad said something to him about, um, "Oh, did Tim find that gift that you left for him?" Meaning, yeah, you did something for Tim. Copra, and uh, that's what inspired me to ask him about that. And yeah, sure enough, he came up with the uh, the incendiary device thing. <laughs> that was pretty cool. As I said, we didn't have a lot of time with him, but uh, I thought I'd ask some questions that possibly other people wouldn't ask. <laughs> yeah, I'm jelly. <laughs> so the next interview was quite heartwarming for me, to be honest with you, um, and it's. Lucy Hawking, who is an award-winning science author, and she's also the daughter of Stephen Hawking. How are you doing? Hello, yes, I'm very well, thank you. Nice to meet you today. Now, Lucy, most people obviously would know you because of your dad. That's right. Um, but 
What is it you actually do? So I'm a children's author and I work with scientists to um, write adventure stories about real science. So the books are based on the idea of a young boy who gets the chance to travel around the universe. And he has a series of adventures with his friend, um, Annie, and they fight for the forces of good against evil. All these incredible things happen to them, but all their adventures are based on real science. And throughout the books, um, we have essays specially written for young readers by scientists, um, including Nobel Prize winner Kip Thorne, uh, my father, uh, Lord Martin Rees, the Royal Astronomer. So we have a very diverse range of um, scientists, also technology experts. Demis Hassabitz writes about um, artificial intelligence. We have Lord Nicholas Stern writing about climate change. So it's really trying to take all that really interesting, fascinating information, but put it into a context for young readers so that it becomes accessible. So basically, they're, they're reading this this adventure, not realising that they're taking in information and learning something at the same time. That's the idea. The idea is that um, you can enjoy yourself and learn at the same time, which maybe is a bit revolutionary. We coin a phrase on on the show. We call it edu- edutainment. Edutainment. That's nice. My father used to call it science faction. <laughs> I like that what too. We did, he said he said what we do is science faction, or he used to say where Harry Potter had magic, we have science. Those were our tactics. That's so cool. That was Dad. Yeah, he was good. He was good at the snappy one-liner. Because your, your dad had a really good sense of humour, didn't he? He was a very, very funny man. He was very irreverent, very dry. And, of course, because he used technology to speak, so he spoke through um, a computer, um, he had to sort of pass his sentences down. Um, just for timing, for the impact um, he didn't have he couldn't sort of talk at length off the cuff so he got used to making these very pointed one-liners one-line interventions in yeah I've, I've noticed that a couple of times when I was watching a couple of his speeches that yeah. he, or talks that he did um, those one-liners used to come in quite regularly they were good they were good weren't they they had some real sort of zingers of course with the talks he would prepare those painstakingly beforehand and it would take him hours and hours and days and days to put all that information together in each word, you know, selected off the computer screen by a twitch of his cheek muscle. And I often had the feeling with him that people didn't really understand how dedicated he had to be to communication to do what he did. Yeah. People didn't. He used to sort of appear on the stage and it would flow and everyone would think, oh, marvellous Stephen Hawking, how lovely. And um, they didn't really understand how much he put into what he did. And, and you've worked with him quite a few times with, uh, on different well, tours and things. The, I wrote the, the book series with Dad. This last one is written just by me, but that's for an obvious reason. Very sadly, he passed away uh, last March. Um, and this 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 final book is kind of it's kind of a tribute to Dad because he also um, he commented on social, scientific, technological issues, and he would be quite willing to give warnings about things that he thought placed an existential threat to humanity such as climate change and so what I've done with this book is this is my hero George lands in the future through time dilation um, he's been travelling very fast so he lands in the future uh, in 2081 so that George actually would be 75 which was the age my father um, was when I first started writing this book and he's landed in this future where all my father's predictions have come true. Artificial intelligence has run amok. Climate change has gone crazy. The whole world is um, run by an orange hologram called Trellis Dump, who lives at the top of a very tall tower called Dump Tower. Oh, right. No relevance. Okay. I'm sure you can't guess where I'm going with that one at all. 
Um, and so it's, it's taking all the things my father said and saying this is what the world would look like if he was right. Excellent. So the book is called... George and the Ship of Time. And it's on, um, from Puffin Books. It is, it okay. is. And it's, it's the final adventure. And funnily enough, um, the spaceship that my young hero travels on is called Artemis. And I wrote that before we knew what the new... The new ship was going to be the new called. ship was going to be called. So I feel like I've got some sort of weird, wow. weird cosmic psychicness going on here. Yeah, time travelling for sure. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. Well, Lucy, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Lovely to talk to you too. And um, I, I don't know about kids reading the book. It sounds like something I would like to read. Oh, good. Well, I hope, you, I hope you do, and hope you enjoy it. Excellent. All right. Lovely to meet you. Thank you. Yeah, that was cool. cool. And I, I, I didn't know where to go with asking her questions about her dad but she actually spoke to me rather than me asking her so at that point I knew it was okay to talk about him Mm -hmm. but the book sounds awesome really does I just like the idea that kids are going to be reading this book and get into it and not realizing they're learning things it's 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 so cool well sometimes that's the best way to do it because if they think they're going to read something and they're expected to learn from it. They might put up that little, uh, uh, you know, just I don't necessarily want to learn. I just want to have fun and read. Now, this is the last interview of the day with Dominique Tipper. And she's the star of one of Amazon Prime's um, sci-fi dramas called The Expanse. Mm-hmm. How are you doing, Dominique? I'm doing great, thank you, Mark. How are you? I'm fine. Good. A busy day, but uh, it's yeah. been absolutely fantastic it and, has. and very surreal, actually. Yes. The kind of people that I've we've had around us all day, you don't expect to see in the same room. In one room. space, yeah. It's, it's fantastic. Now, you've been involved in a, in a, in a sci-fi show called The Expanse. Uh-huh. Now, tell me a little bit about the show. Um, so, if you haven't seen the show, the show's based on a series of best-selling books by James S. A. Corey. And the first one in the series is Le- Leviathan Wakes. Um, and I think there's nine books now. And so the show is set roughly 200 years in the future. We've, we've gone into space and Earth's a superpower, Mars is a military superpower, and then you have the Belt, who are like the underclass of the solar system. And um, it's very much... Everyone's on the brink of war. It's very much about the socio-political... Um, Interactions and how everyone's kind of not really getting on with each other. Um, And then there's a missing girl who's from Earth and she's missing in the belt and a few different groups of people are roped into looking for her. And I play Naomi Nagata, as I said, she's the head engineer of the spaceship Canterbury and I'm part of a crew of four who um, start looking for her um, kind of by accident. Um, And it sets off this solar system-wide conspiracy that plays out over the course of the first season and then, you know, we're we're just about to bring out season four, so there's a lot lot to catch up on if you haven't seen it. Awesome. And where can people uh, view this? So we are on Amazon Prime, and so the first three seasons are on there, available, and then season four comes out on December 13th, and we're just about to go back and shoot season five. Great. Now... The reason why I wanted to talk to you is that when I saw you talking on stage, you were talking as an advocate for um, STEM or STEAM because you've got that art into these things. Um, Tell me about um, why you got involved in in that kind of uh, thing. I mean, I'm just in a, a very unique position. I think with being on The Expanse, I've been exposed to a lot more science uh, not just sci-fi but just 
the science community and also the space industry. And this kind of combined with me also becoming aware that not becoming aware, I knew it, but just kind of thinking about being a working class girl from East London and very much the kind of person I am. I'm very motivated and pushy and curious. And so the position that I found myself in is quite unique because I didn't go to acting school, I didn't go to dance school. I used to be a backup dancer for 12 years before I was a, uh, an actress. And I just, it's all so inaccessible, not only science, and technology and engineering and maths but also art if you are working class if you are from a marginalized community it's it's not so much that it's hard to get into all these places it's just you don't know about it and mm -hmm. the opportunity is not there you're not ever encouraged or taught that you belong in these spaces so I really feel like there is um, a gap a, a huge gaping hole that needs to be filled um, and and create opportunities and bridge this gap between the communities the people who don't think they're supposed to be there and then just getting them into being there mm -hmm. um, as I said, I'm kind of sick of talking about diversity and representation and um, the lack of and the lack of this and how do we do it. I'm like, let's just do it. Yeah. So this is kind of me taking my responsibility and my part and, and putting things into action. And so, again, in, an, in a unique um, position, being that the source material is what it is with the show, a lot of the actors are people of colour and working class. And so I suggested to Amazon and Alcon that we go to each of our hometowns and do outreach in the schools we went to or schools like we went to um, you know low income poverty line yeah. kids that are marginalised and talk to them about being being on the show and also how we manage to have some form of success and still belong to the demographic of people that we do and how to not compromise that and so we're starting in New York when we go to do New York Comic Con wow. and I think we're going to Brooklyn Tech first and we're going to see and shape this and see what it starts to look like and hopefully you know it's my big plan to just kind of take over the world and diversify everything <laughs> why not why not now how does it feel having an event like this in your your old, your old backyard. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I'm from East London, so um, not only are we in East London, but just celebrating the space industry and um, promoting the expanse in my hometown is really lovely. I never really get to do it. But also being able to work with Mark and um, just highlight the issues that this is still predominantly attracted a middle-class white audience, and it... They need to do better. Yeah. ESA needs to do better to include everyone, being the civilian agency that they are. And so I'll be working with Mark going ahead um, uh, to just make this all better and how it should be. And so it's really important for me to be here, not just for the expanse, but also for that. Yeah, awesome. Well, Dominic, it's been fantastic talking with you. You too, Mark. And it was wonderful listening to you on stage as well. Because oh, you, you really put some interesting thoughts out there, and I hope people take them on board. Thank you very much. So do I. All right. <laughs> nice speaking to you. If she wants to take over the world, can I be one of her minions? <laughs> I think it's a really big project that she's got on her hands, but I think it's a very worthwhile project at the same time. Oh, absolutely. And when I heard her on stage talking about this stuff, I was like, I need to talk to her. Like, is, is her statement on stage, is it available for the rest of us to watch, or will it be available? There were video cameras there. The Space Rocks organisers did have some video cameras there, so I'm assuming that the different sessions will be available on the Space Rocks website. Good. 
Now, the third session of Space Rocks is always a concert that went on into the night and featured music from an Australian band called Voyager, who were named after the NASA space probe, a Mancunian space rock experimental band called Amplifier, and headlining the session were a band called Anathema, and they had visuals by a London-based multimedia artist called Christina Polyakova, and the piece was called The Space Between Us, which showcased the work that the European Space Agency does. Um, I have to say, before we start wrapping things up, I have to say a big thank you to Alexander Milas and Mark McCorcoran for allowing us to be part of Space Rocks once again. As I said before, it's a truly out-of-this-world event. Um, I have to thank Ben Pester from Pester PR for arranging everything for us prior and during the event, and Emma, who was basically herding us about <laughs> and uh, everyone who took time out to chat with us at Space Rocks um, it was fantastic talking to each and every one of you Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. So, John. Sir. Another year has flown past. It has. I can't, still can't believe this is the beginning of our sixth year. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like just yesterday when you, you sent me an email saying, hey, would you be interested in doing a show? Yeah, it doesn't seem that long ago, does it? It doesn't. As I keep saying, it, it just seemed that it would be just the two of us in front of a microphone just talking about space stuff and sci-fi stuff and not knowing where it was going to take us. And it's taken us to different places, meeting different people and doing our bit to promote inclusion and diversity. It's been a trip. <laughs> Ah, we got a lot more time to go. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. So let's just keep doing it. Yeah. So, obviously, I've got some other thank yous. Obviously, I've got to thank you, John, for being there for another season. <laughs> I, I say it every show, you're the one who deserves thanks for putting up with me. I, you know, I know of all of the hundreds of letters you get with each episode saying, get rid of the Yankee. <laughs> so... <laughs> actually, going back to... To what um, Chris Lintop was saying about um, the, the chemistry between him and, and Maggie Adirin Pocock on uh, the Sky at Night, he said you need to have one energetic, fast-talking character and one who's not so energetic and not so fast-talking. So, it... oh, I'm detecting an American stereotype being thrown <laughs> at me here. You've said it yourself that you. you, you... <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do talk quickly. I understand that. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that's a Yankee thing. Of course, it was Richard Vobes who originally really pointed that one out to me. Called he, he called me out during one of his shows while I was talking with him. He said, now, one thing, ladies and gentlemen, is that Americans talk very fast. So I'm just like, uh-huh, all right, thanks, buddy. <laughs> but he's right. <laughs> it, it's, it's like the time when... Um, I realised that the guys from Field of Force Day actually listened to the podcast. 
<laughs> when I mentioned something about Simon and he picked me up on it <laughs> when I uh, went to one of the events because I, I mentioned that the fact that uh, the reason Simon is like he is is because he's ex-military and he, he's into rugby and I was waiting to get my press wristband at one of the events and I heard his voice through the crowd saying, hey, I want to have a word with you. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so at least that meant, oh, well, you do listen to the podcast then. <laughs> <laughs> so I also want to thank Ross Hockham for putting together his monthly Sky Guides for us. And also I'd like to thank Alan Taylor Shearer for all the work that he does behind the scenes, taking the photographs for us, for putting on the show notes when we when we go to events and things so yeah everybody who's been involved with the show all our honorary crew members who have been absolutely fantastic to talk to on the show and that's the reason why we've made them honorary crew members because they have been an asset to to the show well that only leaves me with one thing to say and that's take care one and all thanks for listening and we'll speak to you all again real soon toodles i say toodles well that about wraps it up for this episode of tgp nominal if you want to get in touch with us then send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com where your input is our output or click the social media icons at the top left of the page over at tgpnominal.weebly.com if you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. And you can listen to me going solo, bringing you the latest in movies and home theatre for regular people in the Widescreen podcast over at widescreen.org. Don't forget to rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.